And before we get into the stories, today's episode is sponsored by Manscaped. Get 20% off and free shipping with the code MrCreeps at Manscaped.com. And Best Fiends. Download the 5-star rated puzzle game Best Fiends free to in the App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends. Hello everyone. We have a special episode for you this week. This week's stories are guaranteed to give you chills. Prepare yourself and get ready as we journey further into Mr. Creep's mind. If you see a taxi off the side of the highway, don't pull over. Written by 02321 I have no idea why I volunteered for the midnight shift. The extra 40 cents an hour wasn't really worth it. Everyone that I was working with had good reasons to not take the shift that week. Me being the nice person that I am, took the shift that no one wanted. If I didn't, I would have gone to someone with less seniority in the company. And I knew that everyone below me either had kids to look after or college classes. The person who was meant for the midnight shift had a medical emergency the day before, and it was such short notice that I knew it was causing problems. They had to find a body to fill the shift, and I stepped in knowing it would be a hassle for others to change their schedule around. I really should be more selfish in the future. My job was out of the town that I lived. Because of that, I had to drive at least an hour on the highway each way. It was two hours of my days listening to audiobooks or podcasts, so it wasn't a huge waste. Plus, the pay was stupid high for such an easy job. I couldn't really complain about the drive. But even so, I found the highway at night super creepy. For long stretches, there was nothing but endless trees on either side of the road. Driving in the pitch dark, only being able to see a few feet in front of you... And most of that few feet were just trees, and it wasn't pleasant. At least for me. I watched the Blair Witch at far too young of an age. I know it's not a scary movie for anyone else, but seeing trees at nighttime, no thank you. But somehow, my kindness outshone my fear of the woods. I was driving in for my shift at around 11.30pm. I needed a speed if I would make it to work by midnight, but I saw something that I could not ignore. On the side of the road, I saw a car pulled over and the driver's side door open. I didn't see anyone around the car as I came up on it. I saw the car was a taxi, and that gave off some red flags. A few months ago, my car needed to be taken in for some work. I hitched a ride with a co-worker and we got talking just how expensive it would have been if we got a taxi or an Uber to work, even for just one night. I didn't even want to think about how much it would cost if the taxi went by the meter. I had heard that sometimes they do a flat rate between cities, but once you're off the highway, the meter starts. I never bothered to find out if it was true. Seeing a taxi on the highway was weird enough. Seeing a taxi on the side of the highway, top light on and door open, with no one around was super weird. 
I think anyone would think that. But I may be the only person to pull over and see what was going on. I was already going to be late for work, but I knew it would bother me if I didn't at least check to see if someone needed help. I pulled over, but I already passed the taxi when I decided to stop. Instead of backing up, I just got out of my car, taking my cell phone and flashlight out from my trunk. This could be some sort of scam. A way to get people to pull over to be robbed. But I honestly never heard of that happening. Like, ever. At least not where I lived. And my flashlight weighed at least five pounds. I could get a good hit on someone if I had to, and I could just make a run for it. Kicking up dust as I walked over, I could tell something was very wrong even before I had reached the car. I hadn't noticed before, but one of the back doors were open as well. I already had my phone out, and I dialed, trying to get help on the way, but I only got static, which I thought was also very weird. I've never had issues with a signal out on the highway. My phone connected to my car. It would read text messages while I was driving. A signal had never been an issue before. I think any normal person would have just laughed. But I guess I'm stupid. I looked inside the car looking for anyone or anything that would explain why the car was just sitting there. My stomach dropped when I saw some red. I knew it was blood over the driver's seat. I shone my flashlight on the ground to follow a trail of blood droplets with some hurried footprints leading off into the woods. It wasn't a lot of blood, but it wasn't a little either. Someone was hurt, but it was hard to tell how badly. I looked in the back of the taxi trying to find a weapon, but I didn't touch the car. I just leaned over trying to get a good look inside. The window of the rear door that was open had been smashed. Glass littered the back seat, and it had spilled onto the ground outside of the taxi. Something had happened, and I still couldn't get my phone to work. And that was when I heard it. A scream. A man screaming for help from inside of the woods. He sounded close enough for me to reach him. After everything I had seen... And now heard, I really should have ditched the whole thing. But like I said, I'm not the brightest. Uh, stay there, I shouted back. I'm coming to help. Without a second thought, I took off running into the woods after where I thought I had heard the scream from. And it honestly was my worst nightmare. In the woods at night, it's unsettling. I don't know how people go camping. My flashlight was bulky and I had a good beam of light, but it could only go so far into the woods. The darkness where my light could not reach made my palms sweat. I couldn't stand not knowing what was out there in the dark, looking back at me. I scolded myself mentally, saying the only thing out there is someone who needs help. It was only when I was a few feet into the woods and to the point where I couldn't see the light of the taxi was when what I had actually just done sunk in. If a man was hurt out here, what had hurt him? Who had hurt him? It wasn't just him. Someone broke the window. Someone had been in the back seat, and I only had a hefty flashlight and a cell phone. That wasn't even working. I wanted to find the man and get the heck out of there. When I heard something else. A woman's voice. 
Please, can you help me find my son? I looked around, trying to figure out where the voice had came from. My beam of light scanning the dark trees, but seeing nothing besides the creepy trees that I hated. Please, can you help me find my son? The voice came again and then again. She repeated herself three times and fell silent. I started to shake. I just couldn't help it. The woman's voice sounded uh, off. Have you ever seen that video of a bird talking in Japanese? It sounds so human and yet not. So close to human speech, but the tone is so slightly off you're aware that you're not talking to a human. That woman's voice sounded human, and yet not. Run! I screamed at the voice. Of course I screamed. An older man came running out from the trees, his lip torn and still bleeding. He rushed past me and made a grab for my arm to drag me along. He missed but didn't even pause in running to try again. He just ran, trying not to trip over fallen branches and tree roots. He looked like a man who just saw death himself. I was so shocked at still seeing him. I may not have ran after him if an ear-piercing scream hadn't come from behind me. That sound motivated me to run fast, as fast as I could from behind that man. That scream, that sound, I still hear in my nightmares. Or even if I just let myself sit in silence for too long. I have listened to over hundreds of wildlife recordings trying to prove to myself that I'd heard an escaped exotic pet. Or anything that would logically explain that scream that I heard. It wasn't made by a human or an animal. It was nothing that I have ever heard since. And I hope to never hear again. And it was right behind me. I somehow caught up to the man. I felt like we had run so far and yet we hadn't reached the road yet. I had to stop because my chest burned from running. We both stood, gasping for air from fear and from running through the hard to navigate forest floor. The flashlight beam was powerful enough to light his face covered with blood, even if I wasn't pointing it directly at him. He nervously ran a hand over his face. It didn't wipe off anything, only getting his face bloodier. I had only heard a voice and a scream. I didn't want to know what this man had seen in the woods. We need to keep going. I told him once I was able to talk again. It's not my fault. He was running his bloody hand through his hair, clearly out of his mind from fright. I wanted to reach out to try and calm him down, but wasn't sure if that would only upset him more. I decided to let him talk while I looked around trying to find a way out of the trees. It's not my fault. I mean, she's pretty. She was pretty. She got into my cab, right? You understand. By some miracle, I had spotted a light through the trees. I was positive it came from the taxi from the road. I was just about to tell the man that we needed to walk in that direction, but what he was saying made me stop. I had never been so afraid of my life being in those woods, but I still stopped to look over at him. What are you talking about? I asked slowly. Girls like that don't mean no, right? If they are so nice like that, and smile at you like that, they want it, right? I didn't even do anything. I just parked. I didn't even get into the back seat. She was the one who leaned over, 
She bit my lips off. She was the one who wanted it. As he spoke, his voice got more and more frantic. I stood in place, watching him lose it. He was running his hand through his hair, tearing at it. His body shook and his eyes darted around wildly. That woman is inhuman, he shouted. He grabbed at his head with both hands and started to sob. This man. I didn't want to think of what would have happened to the woman in the back of his taxi if she was human. If he had just picked up a normal person that night, what would he have done? Over his sobbing, I heard a branch crack and then another. I raised my flashlight to look into the darkness and I finally saw her. She was pretty. That much was true and also not human. Long brown hair fell over her shoulders. She was only wearing a flower print sundress with the driver's blood down the front. Her face looked normal aside from her eyes. They were eyes of a dead woman, blind and pale. She was only a few steps away from us. The sobbing man hadn't noticed her creep up behind him. She stood in the beam of the flashlight, almost curious what I would do. I did something that I never expected of myself. While keeping the flashlight on the woman, I took a step back, and then another. The taxi driver was in so much distress he didn't notice me slowly backing away from him. It was only when I was a decent distance away from them, was when the driver had finally raised his head. I saw the horror on his face when he noticed that I was now so far away from him. Almost in slow motion, I watched as he reached out a hand for me, and at the same time, the woman took him. Her mouth ripped open, causing her head to look like a demonic pez toy. With her hand suddenly long claws, she grabbed his shoulder and latched onto his neck. Her eyes stayed on me the entire time. Blood soaked the front of the driver's shirt before he could even make a sound. That woman never took her dead eyes off of me as she tore her flesh away from the man. I did not stay around to see her rip him apart. I turned and ran as fast as I could towards the light coming from the taxi. I got out of the woods without being followed. I kept running to my car and I flew in. My hands were shaking too much to even start the thing. On reflex, I checked my phone. I saw that I had a signal and without any delay, I called the police. I don't know why I stayed in my car. Or why I didn't just leave after reporting my story. Even in my state, I knew I couldn't tell the truth. I told the operator that I had spotted the taxi pulled over, saw some blood, and when I was about to go into the woods to try and help, I heard screaming that it freaked me out and I ran back to my car. Even after the cops had showed up, they just took my story again and my info and then dismissed me. I was very late for work, but after telling my bosses a very abridged version of the night's events, they forgave me. I still have trouble sleeping. I no longer do midnight shifts, and I hate driving along the highway before the sun comes up on my early morning shifts. Later on, I looked up the case, but I didn't find many details. They only found some of the remaining blood from the driver but it was still enough for them to be positive that he was dead. I was not a suspect, even though I had found the car. I looked up the driver's name once I had found it out and saw that he had assaulted other women before. 
He had just been released and wasn't even a real taxi driver. They had no idea where he got the taxi from, but the police were sure that he was just using it to hunt other women. A bit of information about the case that made it impossible to sleep at night was who the woman was. They found her DNA on the broken window glass. The thing was, she had disappeared three years ago and was assumed dead. She had gone missing in the woods with her son. Maybe I should get a new job. One much closer to home. Support for Creepscast is brought to you by Manscaped, who is the best in men's below-the-waist grooming champions of the world. Manscaped offers precision-engineered tools for your family jewels. Manscaped just launched their fourth-generation trimmer, the Lawnmower 4.0. You heard that right, the 4.0. Join over 2 million men worldwide who trust Manscaped with this exclusive offer for you. 20% off and free worldwide shipping with the code MrCreeps at Manscaped.com. Thanks to Manscaped, I'm one of the first people to try out the new 4.0 and let me tell you, I'm blown away. The craftsmanship and details are amazing and it always gets the job done. Their fourth generation trimmer features a cutting edge ceramic blade to reduce grooming accidents thanks to their advanced skin safe technology. I now feel confident shaving my boys. Get 20% off and free shipping with the code MrCreeps at Manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at Manscaped.com and use code MrCreeps. Unlock your confidence and always use the right tools for the job with Manscaped. God was forced to leave heaven. Written by Postmortem33 A few years ago, I decided to quit the priesthood. I had dedicated more than 35 years of my life to the Lord, and I followed Him and His Word blindly. The church became more important than everything to me. It was my home, sanctuary, the place where I felt most at peace. My unconditional love was to God. Not few were the days when I overlooked and neglected my family for him. And then one day, my wife got sick. I prayed and prayed. I hoped that he would listen. She only lasted five days after the diagnosis. It spread so fast in her body. The doctors said they had never seen anything like that before. Yet, I didn't renounce God. I said that if that was what he wanted, so be it. Two years after that, my daughter had an accident while coming home from school. It was winter. She had slipped on the ice and hit her head violently. She passed away two hours later in the hospital. I felt like nothing made sense anymore. I felt like being subjected to twisted tests and monstrous things were building up inside me. I started doubting not only God but his existence too. What kind of a ruthless, wretched, and faceless God would allow something like this to happen? 
What kind of monster that held power over everything would allow two innocent and beautiful souls to be taken like that? I remember screaming at the skies when I lost all my composure. I never asked you for anything. I was a faithful soldier. I spread your word to everyone. Yet, you let the two loves of my life die. You take them away from me. Why? If you are out there, give me a sign, an answer. I shouted. Nothing. Screw you. Screw you, you coward. I yelled, flipping off the sky and ripping my collar. That was the last day for me as a priest. Preaching the word of God came to an end at that exact moment. I gave in to drinking. It seemed the only logical thing to do. Alcohol was always considered to be the most effective short-term memory loss enabler. And that's what I wanted. To forget about my misery just for a few hours. Shortly after that, I found myself wasting away in a different bar every day. And then, the unspeakable happened. I learned about the most frightening thing in the world. It was a Wednesday night, about 8 o'clock or so. Jack, the bartender who had saved my life once after finding me intoxicated and passed out in the park, poured me a double whiskey on the rocks. That's all that I was getting for that night. He wouldn't give me any more. He said that he didn't want to feel guilty if I died from cirrhosis or any other alcohol consumption related disease. How goes it, Jack? I asked, sipping on my drink. Oh, not too bad, Thomas. How about you? I groaned and didn't say anything. I began studying the whiskey. I asked myself why alcohol has such a strong effect on us. Why do we drink it? We do it, no matter how we feel. If we're sad or depressed, we drink to drown those bad feelings away. If we're happy, we drink it so we can celebrate important events in our life. We also use it when we pour a few drops in the grave of passed away buddies to honor their memory. A man stormed in the bar. He almost kicked the doors down. I could feel something was off about him. He looked straight at me and I saw a fear in his eyes that shook me to my core. The rather peculiar thing I noticed was that every other person in the bar seemed to ignore what had just happened. They just carried on with their mundane conversations and whatnot. I'll have a vodka please, he told Jack almost out of breath. I ignored him and carried on sipping on my whiskey. There was a sense of impending doom floating in the air. That man had something wrong about him. I wasn't scared of him, but by what he brought with him, I felt that he carried an all-too-heavy burden. I didn't know if it was guilt, fear, sadness, or another thing. The only thing I knew was that whatever he had to say was terrifying. I need to talk to you before I go, Father. It's coming soon. I can't do anything to stop it, he said, staring me blankly right in the eye. He looked so lost, so empty, defeated almost. Don't call me that. I stopped being a priest a long time ago. Are you alright? I asked him, seeing his entire body shiver. 
and his hand was shaking violently while he drank. He continued to stare at me. I felt my heart rising in my throat. There was just a never-ending feeling of deep fear, hopelessness, and wretchedness that this man transmitted. I, I'm sorry, Father. I wish I would have said or did something about the passing of your family. I simply couldn't. The odd man said, bursting into tears. I am, was, God. I felt shivers run down my spine. Anger and fear took a hold of me, clouding my judgment. I squeezed the glass so hard until it broke. Listen, man, I don't know who the hell you are or who sent you here, but I swear that I'll beat the leaving crap out of you if you don't leave. I said, instantly judging myself. I was never a violent person. Jack, did you hear what that man just said? Yeah, he said he wanted a vodka. I gave it to him, he replied. No, after that man. Didn't you hear what he said a few seconds ago? I asked. Jack just gave me a confused stare, raising an eyebrow. This was getting very strange. It was either they were all messing with me, or I didn't have a clue as to what was going on. Only you can hear everything I say. Now, do you believe me or not? He sobbed. He then grabbed my wrist and pressed hard on it. I saw a land burning, and there were creatures unknown to me fighting each other and getting killed in a gruesome way. They were pulling each other's eyes out. They were eating each other. Flesh and blood flying in the air. It morbidly decorated the once beautiful land. It looked like one grotesque painting. I heard a metallic scream somewhere in the distance. I was petrified with fear. I froze in place, unable to move. I looked the man in the eye and screamed, falling off my chair. His grip left a circular burn on my wrist. Jack, what's going on? I cried. You lost balance and fell, Thomas. Be more careful next time, he said. This wasn't happening. It couldn't be possible. I scanned the room for a quick second. Everybody acted like I just fell off my chair. Like I was a drunk. Thomas, I'm sorry for all of this. I wish it could have been different. What I have to say is very important. Please, there isn't much time left. They are coming, the man said. I nodded. This was impossible for me to believe. After all these years and after all I'd been through, God came to me. I felt the fear was clogging my arteries. I felt like a bomb ready to explode. Heaven is burning. It's almost dead. Soon to be wiped out of existence. I don't think anything could save it, he said. I just stared at him, dumbfounded. He told me everything and what I learned will haunt me for the rest of my life. When he created heaven, he hid it. He knew there were more gods. Some were good, and he could have found allies. Others were so evil, so diabolical that they could wipe him and heaven out in a second. And that's why he camouflaged heaven, hell, and our planet as a precautionary measure. He told me heaven was like a paradise, 
the souls of our dear departed, the ones who did nothing but good in his life, were allowed to ascend there in the afterlife. The angels were not as we all knew them. They had a different appearance. God made them in a way meant to strike the utmost fear in their enemies if there is a battle going on. And there were a lot of battles throughout time, with lesser gods, with the devil. Heaven always won, easily so, but not this time. This was absolutely frightening, even for God. I did manage to hide every single soul from heaven to another place that I have created. You never knew about it because I never allowed it. A smaller heaven. The endless sanctuary, he said. I stood aghast. I wanted to ask something, but he cut me off before I could pop the question. Yes, your wife and daughter are safe, he assured me. He also told me that he created an endless amount of new angels. They were his most powerful soldiers. The Mecha Angels. I'll use the angels against these evil beings. Against the screaming ones. He said with a trembling voice. One day, a deafening scream resounded all across heaven. It happened a few years ago. Years by mankind's way of measuring time. Up there, it was mere minutes. The scream instantly killed some of the angels, turning them to ash. Those who were up in the ranks tried to fight, but they soon lost too. God managed to save the souls of the departed and some of the angels, archangels, and saints. He hid them all in the endless sanctuary. He said that he even thought to forgive Lucifer and to ask him to join the fight. But it was too late. Before heaven, they had destroyed hell. The devil wasn't dead, he had vanished. God tried to find him, but he didn't manage to do so. Heaven was almost gone. He left it briefly so that he could take care of the little that he had saved. He told me that he even had managed in the nick of time to move the tree of life from heaven to the endless sanctuary. If the tree got destroyed, that would be the end of everything. God, heaven, humankind... And our planet. He stopped inside. When I left, I saw their silhouettes. Slender and tall, piercing and screaming to the heavens. Killing my beautiful creation. My children. It was horrifying to look at. Thomas, I have never been afraid of anything before. This was the first time. Do you know how awful it feels? He asked. Yes, I do. You're passing that fear into me right now. I never even thought this kind of fear even existed. I replied. He gave me the last details about the screaming ones. Those terrified me. I was a statue, frozen in place in that bar stool. Their face was just a gigantic, spiraling mouth. The shiny and pointy teeth kept chattering. While the waves of sound the screaming made obliterated everything in their path. He grabbed my wrist one more time. And then I was taken off into heaven. I saw one of them. It came to me. He started screaming and I felt my whole body trembling. My skin was falling off. Blood pouring on the ground. 
I saw how I would die. It was a picture that I will never forget in my life. I think that's how I will die if they ever come here on earth. And then God laughed, salvaged what he could do. He felt like a part of him was murdered, ripped away and killed in cold blood. Heaven was a screaming bloodbath. You are one of my most faithful servants, Thomas. Your work and devotion never went unnoticed. That's why I chose you today, he said. I could barely find any words to everything that he said. I just stood there, watching him telling me the tale of how heaven was almost murdered. I couldn't understand, yet I believed him with every single inch of my mind. You know, each prayer works. When you pray to me, the words you say empower me. They give me strength and they make me stronger. You are my most beautiful creation and I love every single one of you. You have your flaws, but you don't need to be perfect. That's why I made you like this. Is that all we can do to help? I asked. He nodded and let out a sigh. He told me that we don't even know how strong the power of prayer is. And before leaving, he asked me to share this with whomever I could. And that's why I decided to write it down here. He also told me that the final war against these screaming ones will take place in five days. If you start hearing screams coming from the sky, then I have failed everyone and everything. Your prayers will not work, because I'll be dead, he said right before he left the bar. These past four days had been nerve-wracking. I couldn't sleep, because I was so afraid of everything that could happen. Wherever God is, we should all be praying. Pray as much as you can, because this is the last day. Pray that we will not hear screams coming from the sky. There's Something Wrong with the Deer in Northern Minnesota Written by Six Feet Below The dim orange glow of the campfire danced on Savannah's face. It made her features more sharp in the darkness of the night as she spun a spooky tale of the surrounding woods. She held a flashlight underneath her chin and spoke in a low and soft voice. Her eyes wide as she leaned in, and lowered her voice even further. When Dave laid down in his sleeping bag, Sylvia was gone. She let the last few words of her sentence sink in. Kimberly gasped as she realized what had happened. So, Sylvia wasn't there in the first place, she didn't exist. Savannah smiled and clicked the flashlight off. She shrugged her shoulder as if to say, Who knows? Kimberly reached over and took hold of Matthew's arm. I rolled my eyes at the obvious plan as Matthew threw Savannah a wink before he wrapped his arm around Kimberly and pulled her in closer. Of course, most of us didn't find Savannah's story creepy or scary. The only person who can't handle anything remotely scary is Kimberly. 
she can't even watch the Scarecrow episode of Goosebumps. To be honest, that episode did scare me as a kid. I believe that's the reason for my fear of cornfields, along with the movie Children of the Corn. But watching those movies and episodes now seem comical due to the expectations of horror movies now. After roasting some hot dogs, hamburgers, and sweet corn, we all climbed into our respective tents for the night, unaware of the evil that lurked just beyond the safety of the campfire. I laid in my sleeping bag and listened to the pops and crackles of the fire, along with the croak of the frogs and tunes of the crickets. It was hard to fall asleep with all the noise, but I somehow managed to. Albeit, it was a few hours before I did. It must have been around 3 or 4 in the morning when I woke up to the sounds of twigs snapping and the weeds rustling. I sat up and held my breath. I could hear my pulse beat in my ears. That was it. Just the sound of my own beating heart. That thrashed wildly in my chest. I sighed and laid back down. Must be a raccoon. I thought as I closed my eyes. It's normal for nocturnal animals to wander into campsites in search of scraps. There was another snap of a twig and the sound of heavy breathing. I laid as still as possible and wondered if the others had woken up. I could hear Kimberly shuffle around in her and Matthew's tent. Matt, Matt, I can hear her whisper. I heard the others move about their tents cautiously. The sound of a zipper and then the rustle of the tent flap. There was a sharp intake and a loud squeal as the sound of the tent ripped open. I could hear grunts and growls. At first I thought it was a bear but when I opened my tent... What I saw was not a bear. It was a massive buck. It frothed at the mouth as it tore a large hole into Kim's and Matt's tent. I grabbed the closest object and I chucked it at the deer. It had jerked its head towards me and I nearly screamed. It had a large hole in the middle of its head. Dark blood oozed out of the wound and I could see its brain slosh around inside. A few bugs fell out of the hole. I could smell the decay of the deer as it lowered its head and charged at me. I ducked to the right and watched as the deer got tangled up in my tent. I can hear Savannah shout as a blade of a pocket knife sliced open the back end of my tent. I scrambled through the hole and I stumbled to the ground. I looked over my shoulder and watched as the deer bucked wildly as it continued to attack the tent. There was another branch breaking as another deer walked into the campsite. This one had large gashes on its stomach that allowed its intestines to hang and drag on the ground. A good chunk taken out of its shoulder as it limped towards us. It swayed its head wildly as Matt pulled me to my feet and towards the van. We all climbed in. I watched as the deer started to trash the whole place attacking anything in sight. What the heck is wrong with them? Kimberly shouted as we pulled out onto the gravel road and sped out of there. Rabies, Kimberly said to no one in particular, mostly to herself as an attempt to calm a racing heart. There is no way in heck that was rabies. 
I thought as the image of the large hole in the deer's skull flashed in my mind. Just what the heck happened? We drove all the way back to town when we finally stopped at a gas station. Kimberly jumped out of the van and emptied her stomach. I nearly jumped when Savannah told me not to move. She walked up to me and flicked a piece of decayed flesh. I gagged at the smell. Should we tell someone? Matthew asked as soon as he had rejoined the rest of us. His eyes red and puffy. Clearly, he had cried in the restroom from the near-death experience that he just had a few hours ago. We can tell wildlife services. Surely, they'll know what's wrong. Maybe they're sick with some disease. Savannah stated. I nodded my head at her suggestion. We called wildlife services and waited for them to meet up with us to get the details that they needed in order to handle the problem. Savannah had told them a bit of what had happened. So, it was strange to see a few black unmarked vehicles pull into the gas station. A couple of people got out of the cars armed with semi-automatic rifles. I jumped when a large man had shouted for us. I quickly jogged over to him and waited for the others, who reluctantly followed me. You sure you saw what you saw? The man asked. A few of the men cocked their guns and took a threatening step forward. I nodded my head, unable to speak or move in fear that I would be arrested, or worse. Well, alright. The CDC will be here in an hour. I want you kids to stay here until they arrive. Let's move out. All the men climbed back into the vehicles, except two of them stayed behind to ensure that we followed orders. It must be serious if there's unmarked military vehicles in the CDC involved, Matthew whispered to me. I hummed in response. We stayed at the station for nearly an hour, when a van with the CDC logo painted on its side pulled in. A group of people dressed in full-body scrubs, face masks, eyewear, and gloves. They each took turns checking our vitals and swapping our mouths before they asked us to climb into the vehicle where they would escort us to the nearest hospital for a three-week quarantine. I'll do an update when we get our test back from them. As for now, I'm stuck in the hospital eating hospital food and watching cable TV. It turned out that they weren't going to let us go in the first place. Our test results came back and the four of us had become patient zeros. But I know that I'm not infected. I didn't get any type of bodily fluid in an open wound, because I didn't have any open wounds. The only one that did have one was Kimberly. She had a flare-up with her cold sores during our stay on the campsite, and she apparently had gotten blood on her face. That's why she had thrown up when we had pulled into the gas station. Some of the blood got into her cold sore and mouth. I realized what they had planned to do to the rest of us. They were going to kill us and tell our family that we were ripped to shreds and trampled on by wild deer. They were going to say Kimberly went up to a sick rabid deer to pet it, but the deer had attacked us all. Can you believe that? Here I thought that they were here to help us, but I guess we're not worth helping. The CDC and military personnel did have a clue that I discovered their plan, so I was able to warn the others 
We gathered all the supplies that we could and snuck out of the hospital, though it didn't take long for them to discover our ruse. We all climbed into our van and sped out of there as fast as we could. Behind us is a load of unmarked cars. One of them had flipped on their lights and they started to chase us down. I looked at Savannah, her hair and makeup a mess. She had streaks of mascara down her face along with red puffy eyes. We had to leave Kimberly behind. We couldn't take the risk of getting infected. It wasn't a group choice either. I had made the decision. I lied to the others. The tension in the air was so thick that you could cut it with a hot knife. Matthew chewed his bottom lip as he maneuvered through these streets and oncoming traffic. Our pursuers had to fall back, most likely due to Kimberly. Maybe she had finally turned. I shook the thought away as Savannah relayed the directions to her parents' lake house to Matthew. The drive to the lake house was tense and filled with silence. That was until Matthew leaned over to switch the radio on. We've received an important message from our local police department. Be on the lookout for a light blue van with silver decals. The van is driven by three people suspected of homicide. I looked at Savannah, but she kept her head forward. The victim is a 24-year-old, Kimberly Anderson. That's BS, Matthew shouted. He slammed his hand on the steering wheel while Savannah tried to pull herself together. It's not even our local radio channel, Savannah added. I looked at the radio and leaned forward to switch it off. But Matthew slapped my hand away and glared at me. Don't you dare turn it off. He snapped with a dark scowl. And clearly, he didn't agree with my prior decision. But what else were we supposed to do? Take her with us. If that were the case, we would have ridden our own deaths. We pulled into the driveway of the lake house and quickly grabbed these supplies and headed inside. We made sure to not turn on the lights while Matthew parked the van behind some shrubbery in the woods. We wouldn't be staying at the lake house for too long. We don't want any unexpected company during our stay. Savannah turned the TV on and switched it to the local news. And that's when we learned that all hell broke loose. There were multiple casualties and that the virus had spread pretty quickly among the town. I could hear Matthew outside in his cell phone, and the slew of curses that he blurted out when he couldn't reach his family. All of the emergency lines were busy. There had been a lot of traffic as people tried to leave, but they were stopped by a roadblock just outside of town. I watched as the same black Dodge Charger sped back into town, after being stopped and told to turn back around. I was about to tell the others when... I heard the sound of a squealing tires. I looked outside just in time to see the charger speed down the road and right through the roadblock. Just as when the car made it past the barrier, there were gunshots as the military tried to shoot out the tires. I didn't sleep that night. My mind was racing with a million thoughts. The night was filled with sounds of gunshots and explosions as cars crashed into one another. There were screams and shouts, along with a group of looters that tried to break into the lake house, but Matthew and I were able to chase them off. 
And does your dad have any guns? Matthew asked after a long pause. Savannah was seated in front of the radio and shook her head. He doesn't keep them here. I looked between the two. They were still pissed at me. I stood up and decided to take a look around the house while they talked. Where are all the knives? Their conversation grew muffled as I walked to the back of the house and into the bathroom. There I sat on the floor and quietly cried, and wondered if we would all be able to survive this. I woke up to the sound of banging on the front door, and I sat up. I looked around the bathroom and nearly crapped myself when I spotted the bloodied face of a man peering into the bathroom window. His eyes were wide, and he gnashed his teeth at me and started to bang his head on the window. I got up and quickly left the bathroom. In the living room sat Matthew and Savannah. Their eyes were on the front door, where a group of zombified people all huddled and tried to get inside. And they slammed their bodies against the door and banged their heads in the glass. We'll head through the back door into the van, Savannah told me. And that's when I noticed the packed bags next to me. Matthew tossed me a bag, a bit too hard, and jerked his head to the door. We quietly exited the house and crouch-walked all the way to the van. We tossed our bags inside and climbed in. We all braced ourselves for the onslaught of zombies as Matthew turned the key in the ignition. The van roared to life and over the hum of the engine. I could hear these screams and shrieks as the group of zombies turned the corner of the house and charged at us. We drove for hours with a blood-covered van, a few broken windows, and a cracked windshield. Savannah looked exhausted, along with Matthew. I sat in the back with a bloodied bat in my lap. We planned to make our way south. Hopefully the virus hasn't spread that far. As for now, we need to take turns driving. I'll be the one to drive next. Wish us luck, because we'll need it. We took shelter in a motel just a few hundred miles from the epicenter of the virus. Matthew still refuses to talk to me outside of our plans and meetings. Savannah opened up to me about how messed up it was for me to make a decision for the group without their approval, but she understood why I did what I did. We watched the news channel and seemed the military had a great time covering the whole thing up. The news said something about anthrax in the water and the whole town was to be quarantined until further notice. So, no one can enter and no one can leave. It's not like anyone's going to leave. They're probably already infected. That includes Matthew's family and my parents. I pulled up my phone to stare at the wallpaper. It was a picture of my parents and I at the Crazy Horse Monument. I felt my nose burn and a lump form in my throat as I stared at the picture. I remembered the last conversation I had with them before the camping trip. Be careful and make sure to put your food away. You don't want any unwanted guests to show up. My dad said as I packed my bag. I nodded my head and stuffed another pair of pants into the already packed bag. It took a while for me to zip the bag closed. Remember to call us if anything happens. And make sure to put out the fire before you go to sleep. My mom said as she gave me a hug. I smiled at her and tugged her back, before I jogged outside to Matthew's van 
and climbed into the back along with Kimberly. I wonder if they're safe. I thought as I put my phone to sleep and I laid down on the bed. The sound of running water filled the silence along with the TV. I must have fallen asleep because when I woke up, the motel room was dark and eerily quiet. I sat up and looked around in the darkness and leaned over to turn on the lamp on the nightstand. The yellow light lit up the room to reveal that Matthew and Savannah were no longer in the motel room. Oh, what the heck? I shouted as I looked for the supplies. They were gone. Those two took the supplies, the money, and the van. I don't have any money to stay in the motel, let alone pay for my one night stay. I quietly snuck out of the motel room and went straight to the only payphone on the far right side of the building. I dialed Matthew's number, but it rang a few times before it was sent to voicemail. I quickly hung up the phone, and I started to walk down the road. That was until I noticed a few cars had blocked the road up ahead. I strained my eyes in the dark to see that there were about four or five people stationed by the roadblock. Crap, I muttered as I jogged back to my motel room. Inside, I paced back and forth as I tried to think up a plan. I stopped in my tracks when I spotted something moving outside in the parking lot. I peeked through the blinds and felt all hope leave me. A fatally wounded deer stumbled in the parking lot. Its head swayed side to side as it walked in circles. A trail of blood led to the left side of the parking lot, and it disappeared behind the other wing of the motel. The beast let out a low whistle. I watched as lights started to turn inside the motel rooms, as curious patrons looked outside to see this injured deer in the parking lot. A lot of them ventured outside, and a young couple approached the deer. I banged on the window and rushed to the door, but I was too late. The deer had charged the people, and it had managed to impale the guy while it stomped on the girl. Everyone out screamed and stumbled back into the rooms, while I stood there and watched as the deer shook the guy's limp body from its antlers. Blood soaked and cut up, the girl tried to crawl to safety, but it was futile as the deer brought its hooves down onto her back. She cried for help one last time, before her skull caved in due to the onslaught of blows to her head. I slowly walked backwards into my room and quietly closed the door. The deer then started to feed on the girl, but it wasn't able to bite through the flesh. I sat on the floor and I cradled my head, unable to shake the last images of the couple from my head. The whole moment seemed so fake, like some scene from a horror movie, but this isn't a horror movie. It actually was happening. I wondered where the heck Matthew and Savannah went, did they go back for Kimberly? I woke up to the sounds of screaming. There is a kink in my neck from sleeping on the floor. It hurt to move my back too much, so I had to move awkwardly. As I looked around outside to see a woman run past my window and be chased by some guy that's covered in blood, the guy let out a roar and tackled the woman to the ground, and then he proceeded to smack her head. I jumped away from the window when his head snapped in my direction. 
I laid on the floor and held my breath as the guy stumbled past my door and continued on down the row of rooms until he found his next victim. I laid there for a good 10 minutes before I decided it was safe enough to look outside. In front of me stood the man, his face pressed up to the glass and his widened bloodshot eyes focused on me. I gasped and fell back when he started to bang his head on the glass. His forehead split open and he started to paint the window. There was a crack that slowly spread across the window. I ran into the bathroom and I closed the door behind me. I've been stuck in the bathroom for hours now and that thing is still outside. I can hear him stumble around the room. I think I can get out through the window. I'm sure someone's room is open so I can get their keys and take their car. I need to head back into town for more supplies and weapons if I want to get past these soldiers and roadblock. I'd been trapped inside the bathroom for hours before someone or something else had drawn them away. But even then, I didn't dare peek outside. When I knew the coast was clear, I slowly opened the bathroom door and crept out of the motel room. It looked horrible outside. There was blood that stained the sidewalk and parking lot. Motel rooms now sat vacant and dark. There were no bodies strewn across the ground either. Did they turn or were they eaten? I thought to myself as I searched the rooms for any type of key that might resemble the car key. I found one in room 201. The keys were for a 2013 Chevy Silverado. I climbed into the driver's side and put the key in the ignition when one of the doors opened. I froze as I watched a family of two walk out onto the walkway of 210. They stared at me as I started the car engine and started to pull out of the parking lot, but I stopped. The family quickly walked down the steps and jogged up to the truck and climbed in. This was a bad idea. I thought as I had pulled out of the parking lot and onto the road, heading towards the town. Aren't you going the wrong way? The mother asked in a shaky voice. I looked at her through the rearview mirror before I returned my gaze back onto the road. There's still a roadblock back the other way. We won't be able to get through without any weapons. I think that's where everyone else at the motel went, drawn to the gunshots of the soldiers. She nodded her head and hugged her two sons closer to her body. Thanks. The father muttered out as he looked around paranoidly. But why wouldn't they be attracted to the sound of the shock? That question stumped me. I didn't know whether they were or not. I shrugged my shoulders. If they are, we can abandon the truck just outside of town and walk to the gun store and walk back to the truck. I suggested. He didn't say anything. I pulled over to the side of the road and got out and along with the father. We thought it would be best to have the children and the mother stay with the truck. No use to put them in harm's way. We quietly and cautiously walked on the road, armed with only our bare hands. The father kept a lookout from behind while I watched the front and sides. We don't know when an infected animal or person may lunge out at us. We walked past a large group of infected people on our way to the hardware store. The front door busted with shards of glass littered across the ground. 
I carefully walked over the glass and only paused whenever I heard a growl or a hiss. Once inside, I grabbed anything that could be used as a weapon, or anything that we could use to carry all of our equipment. In the distance, I can hear the low rumble of an engine as Matthew's van drives past the hardware store with a long line of infected animals and people behind them. I watched as Savannah swung desperately at an infected that latched onto the busted passenger window. Tires squealing, they drive out of sight and towards our truck. Crab, I curse along with the father. We both took off out of the parking lot of the store and stared down the highway and watched as more infected converged with the rest. We quickly made our way down the road and stopped a few meters away from the truck, which was now swarmed by the infected. There is no way we'll get through that. I stated the obvious, but the father didn't listen and charged into the mass anyways. He swung his lead pipe madly as they all swarmed him and started to rip him apart. He barely had time to scream. I took the opportunity to distract the horde with my own lead pipe. I chucked it in the opposite direction and made a mad dash to the truck. Once inside, I looked behind me to see the two children and their mother, all three traumatized by the scene of their loved one being devoured alive. I'm sorry. That's all I could say as I started the truck and peeled out of the area and headed back towards the motel. The drive was quiet and somber. A few infected lingered behind the truck as the rest was distracted by a deer that had wandered out of the woods. A few meters ahead of us, I saw Matthew's van parked in the middle of the road, with all the doors wide open. Bloody handprints smeared the exterior of the vehicle, along with dents and scratches. A few bodies laid on the ground around the van, with their heads bashed in. Black blood oozed from the wound along with the gray chunks of brain. I stopped the car and sat idle for a good minute before I turned it off. Where did the horde go? I muttered as I leaned out of the window and checked the surrounding area. There wasn't a single infected in the area. I'm sure Matthew and Savannah couldn't have taken the horde on by themselves. So where did they go? I climbed out of the truck, carrying a serrated shovel in my hand. The mother and her kids stayed inside the truck while I quietly walked around the abandoned van. That's when I noticed a bloody trail that led from the back of the van down the highway toward the motel. A few feet ahead of me, I spotted one of Kimberly's bracelets covered in blood. I walked back to the truck to inform the mother and kids that I'll be back and I headed in the direction of the bloody trail. I followed it up the steps of the second story of the motel and into room 219, where I found Kimberly strapped to the bed with makeshift restraints made of rope and sheet. Matthew laid on the floor with a large gash in his neck while Savannah tried to stop the bleeding. I tried to pull her away, but it was too late. Matthew seized on the floor, his body convulsed and contorted as the illness took over. I didn't think twice when I bounded out of the room and down the steps back towards the truck. I climbed in and started the truck. The engine roared to life as I shifted the gear and sped past the van. Put your seatbelts on. I yelled as I braced myself as the truck plowed through the roadblock, 
Up ahead, there was another roadblock. This one was well thought out since there is a pile of bodies strewn across the highway. Soldiers stood guard with their weapons drawn on us. Behind me, I could hear someone breathing erratically. I looked over my shoulder to see one of the little boys convulsing in his mother's lap. She looked up at me, desperately, as she tried to calm him. There's really no way out of this. I hope that last story really gave you a good scare. Now, before we get into our next story, let's take a moment to talk about one of today's sponsors, Best Fiends. Lately, I've been looking for a different puzzle game that really makes me think and use my head. Not something that I can figure out quickly and easily, but a game that continues to challenge me as I work through it. And that's where Best Fiends really differentiated itself and stood out to me. Once I downloaded the game and played through the first couple levels, I couldn't put it down. Best Fiends felt like a breath of fresh air compared to other mobile puzzle games. I really enjoyed being able to level up different characters, my favorite being Quincy, and to boost their attacks to help move through levels. I got so caught up playing that before I knew it, I had made it through level 20, and I planned to continue playing. Luckily, Best Fiends is frequently updated, so I always have new exciting challenges to face and explore. After playing it myself, I definitely recommend that you should give it a try too. Download the 5 star rated puzzle game, Best Fiends, free to in the App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends. I was a janitor at the CDC in Atlanta. They are concealing something that is very dangerous. Written by Bleep Bloop 1990. I don't know how much time I have, so I'll try to make this quick. I formerly worked at the Center for Disease Control and Prevention in Atlanta. I quit yesterday, started driving west, and I didn't stop for two days. Now, I'm in a motel somewhere north of Boise, Idaho. Something very bad is happening in that facility. Something they are trying to keep secret. I smuggled out information on a hard drive when I quit, and I'm going to try to reveal it in pieces in discreet corners of the web. I don't want to draw too much attention to myself. Maybe I'm being paranoid. Probably I am, but well, here. Maybe showing some of the documents will help explain. Warning, confidential. The following document has been designated as classified by the United States Department of Homeland Security. Access to this document is restricted to those designated as security level 4 and higher. Access or distribution of this document by those not authorized to do so will result in civil and criminal penalties. Center for Disease Control, Contagious Disease Office, Biohazard Division, 4542 Federal Way, Suite 434A, Atlanta, Georgia, 30333 Document 40378 Sample number 233356871 Chemical Analysis of Redacted Virus 
Antigen shift and mutation level, 97.5%. Communicatability increase, estimated at 99.4%. Mortality rate, indecisive. Result. Sample number 23335671, confirmed as a novel variant of redacted. Preliminary analysis indicates high mortality and transmission rates and mutation levels. Immediate further testing recommended. Identification of presence and community high priority. Recommend classification description LT78N. End of document. Next document. From Dr. Anthony Zaltitas. To Biohazard Division Classified Section Zone 2. Further testing is confirmed initial results. Sample number 23335671. Identified as highly contagious variant of redacted. Designated V79. Recommend immediate classification and designation. V79 represents imminent threat to national security. As defined by Title VI. All emergency authority under said title hereby authorized. Spread of V79 variant to be avoided at all cost. V79 first identified in Rockvale, Tennessee. Immediate priority. Identify and contain spread. Estimated loss of life expected to be debilitating to national security and function of a state authority. Risk of public panic and concomitant local and national government disintegration of status of V79 released is high. Classification is to be strictly enforced. End of document. Next document. From Dr. Anthony Zaltitas to Biohazard Division Classified Section Zone 2. Operation Paris Phone Complete. Individuals identified as carrying V79 transported to the CDC Division Zone 3. Rockvale, Tennessee and outlying areas currently under observation. Travel restriction in corridor of area not at this time authorized. Risk of public interest and attention too high. End of document. Next document. From Dr. Anthony Zaltitas to Biohazard Division Classified as Section Zone 2. All individuals transported pursuant to Operation Paris Phone deceased. Lethality rate estimated at 99.4%. V79 communicability rate estimated 98.5%. Extreme viral pathogen spread. Recommend immediate quarantine and detention of all staff in contact with V79 patients. Symptoms progress from ordinary cold symptoms, coughing, sneezing, etc. to fever, extreme respiratory arrest, organ failure, and death. No known case of an individual confirmed to have contracted V79 surviving beyond 7 days. End of document. Next document. From the Department of Homeland Security and National Security Division to the Center for Disease Control. Atlanta, Biohazard Division Classified as Section Zone 2. Confirmed V79 spread outside of Observation Zone. Extent of spread unknown cases established in Knoxville, Tennessee, Memphis, Tennessee, and Asheville, North Carolina. 
estimated two weeks until normal security measures unable to reduce public awareness of variant spread. Emergency measures under consideration. End of document. Next document. From Dr. Lisa Shafir. To Department of Homeland Security, National Security Division. Dr. Anthony Zaltites is deceased. V-79 has evaded our containment measures. Staff have begun to display symptoms. We are unable to effectively staff Zone 3 or the Biohazard Division. Multiple staff members fail to report for duty. Staff quarantined within Zone 3 are beginning to display hysteria. Escape attempts have been made. Requesting immediate military reinforcements. End of document. There are hundreds of more documents like that on this hard drive. I knew that I worked in a secretive division, heck. I had to pass a whole battery of background tests just to clean the toilets in the place. Federal agents interviewed everyone down to my kindergarten teachers about me before I got the job. It was nuts. Ordinarily, I never would have been able to slip something like that hard drive out. But it has been a very chaotic there the past few weeks. Little things have begun to slip through the cracks. Now, I am by no means a medical expert. I'm just a janitor there for Christ's sakes. But I can tell something very bad is going on. I knew something was wrong even before I started reading these documents. It started when they told me to stop cleaning Zone 3. I was told that I was no longer authorized to access that section of the building. It wasn't uncommon to have folks in military uniforms drop by, but I had definitely noticed an increase in the number of men in green in uniforms with short, flat hair, and lots of medals walking about looking serious recently. This increase happened about the same time that everyone started to carry the same hairy look of worry on their face. And when I went to empty a trash can in someone's office on the night shift, it became more and more common to find them asleep in the office. Like they were working on something so important, they couldn't stop even to go home. Now, I knew the type of people that I worked for, and the day that those important people with their degrees from snooty schools and their fancy awards on their walls started volunteering to empty their own trash cans and vacuum their own floors, I knew something was wrong. In the days leading up to this new rule about Zone 3, I had been picking up on a very antsy feeling about the place. I guess working in a place that deals with infectious diseases on the regular means everyone is always a little bit on edge. But I kept hearing whispered, anxious-sounding conversations be cut off when I drew close with my cart. This was weird because normally, they just treated me like I didn't exist and carried on talking while I did my thing. Often during this time, I would open an office door to find the scientist, just sitting, staring off into space like they were seeing a ghost or something. Once, I had walked in on Dr. Shafir, sitting in a chair, crying quietly. I shut the door before she had noticed me. So, I was on edge already. And then, after the rule about Zone 3, things got much worse. 
The people going in there were always suited up like astronauts. Full body germ suits, long rubber gloves in the works. Military guys with big scary looking automatic weapons were stationed outside of Zone 3 too. They had gas masks on their faces, like they were expecting a chemical attack. And then, one night, I was cleaning the wall outside of Dr. Zaltita's office, and I heard him and someone else talking in hushed, angry voices. We need to authorize a military blockade yesterday. I heard Dr. Zaltitus say, This is far more deadly and far more contagious than we had feared. With the best protocol in the world, one of our nurses caught it yesterday. We can't risk a panic. Men with guns blocking roads is just going to cause a frenzied exodus, creating the very conditions for mass transmission that we are attempting to avoid. The person speaking these words issued them in a dry, flat tone that I recognized instantly. Colonel Castor. He gave me the creeps. He had these dark little eyes that seemed to never blink, and a face so expressionless that it looked like it belonged more to a lizard than a man. He had become a frequent presence around the office in the past week or so. I didn't know his exact position, only that everyone he met seemed to salute him, rather than the other way around. And when he walked through the hallway, I always saw a little expression of relief on folks' faces if he walked by without saying anything, without turning his attention on them. The same way that a mouse would give a little shudder of relief when the shadow of a hawk passes by without reeling, I reckon. I didn't think he was really a colonel, but something so important, so secretive, that there really wasn't a name for it. The one time that he had looked at me, I had felt like I was a bug that he had impaled, and he was watching me twisting the end of a stick with those cold black eyes. A seriously creepy dude. We should consider going public, Dr. Zaltitus was saying. We can't control this. People need to know we need to prepare. The deaths are going to be in the millions, maybe even. Doctor, let me leave the work in here to you, and you leave the work out there to me. Is that acceptable? The words came out of Colonel Castor's mouth like they were chipped out of ice. Yes, Colonel. Dr. Zaltis has sounded exhausted. He sounded scared. I picked up my things and quietly hid in a nearby office. I didn't want that Colonel Castor coming out and seeing me. After I heard him walk by, I stayed in the dark office for a while, trying to get the nerve to open the door, worried like a little kid that he'd be standing out there waiting for me. I heard Dr. Zaltitas cough in the room next door. After that, things got seriously scary around the office. Maya was talking to Sarah, a nurse who had worked in Zone 3, in the cafeteria one day when she let out a real corker of a sneeze. Maya laughed and said, Bless you. But when she looked up at me, her eyes were huge and her face was all wild looking. I noticed that all the scientists around us had frozen, and they were staring at Sarah like she was some rabid dog. She hurried out of the room without saying anything else. Walking down the hallway later that day, 
I heard one of the guards at Zone 3 let out a big, hacking cough. I noticed lots of tissues in people's trash cans that day. And everyone was running around like chickens with their heads cut off. All with the same, wide-eyed stare on their face. The next day, a lot of the offices were empty. I had felt like working at a holiday. The place was so quiet and deserted. And then I noticed it. The door to Zone 3 was open. The little guard post that they had constructed was still there, but it was empty. Food wrappers lay strewn about the cubicle and a half-drank Coke rested on the little shelf, making it look like they had just upped and left. I couldn't help it. I peered in past the big double doors that led into the Zone 3 hallway. The lights were low and flashing red, painting everything in amber. I saw a body slumped against the wall 30 feet from me. He was lying in front of a door that led into a room with a clear wall. Behind the wall was Sarah. She was slumped against it, not moving. I saw that she had been banging on the wall so hard that she had left red prints all over it. I heard screams coming faintly from within the building. Somebody yelling, Let me out! Let me out! God, please let me out! Again and again in a monotonous howl, through torn vocal cords. Somewhere else, somebody was yelling, I don't have it! I don't have it! And I heard coughing. Lots and lots of coughing echoing through the long hallways. I turned to leave, but it was like my brain forgot how to talk to my legs and I tripped over my cart, spilling dirty mop water everywhere. I started running for the exit, but at the last minute, I stopped myself. I may never have taken much to school, but I can still add two and two together. I knew something very bad was happening in this place. I turned back and I started walking to Dr. Zaltita's office. My heart was beating like I had just run up a flight of stairs, and I realized that I was biting down so hard my lip was bleeding. I took a deep breath in front of the door, with its tasteful little placard saying, Anthony Zaltita is a PhD, Director, Biohazard Division, and then pushed it open. It was night and the overhead fluorescents were off in Dr. Zaltita's office. The only illumination was the ambient light light of streetlights and the nearby office buildings. Came filtered through the closed binds of his big wraparound windows. Shadows of chairs and desks stood engorged over the white walls. I stepped in, the thick carpet muffling my footsteps, and then almost screamed when I saw the distended shadow of two legs, swaying slightly and distorted against the backdrop of the shuttered windows. I turned around, my breath coming whistling through a throat that felt dry and closed up. I saw Dr. Zaltitas hanging from the ceiling of his office, a long-backed chair askew on the ground underneath him. The thick reams of paper splayed out across the floor where the chair had knocked them loose. His face was contorted by the belt that hung around his neck. The buckle sunk deep into the pale flesh. I let out a wheezy breath and, without really thinking, grabbed the laptop sitting on his desk and I ran out of the office. My footsteps echoed back to me through the deserted hallways on my long walk to the exit. 
I was sure at any minute, men with guns would burst out of the closed doors and seize me, pulling me away to some dark room in the basement of this sprawling complex. But nobody did. I waved to Aaron, the night security guard at the checkpoint on my way out. The bright parking lot looked perfectly ordinary. I wondered briefly if I had imagined everything. I had always had an active imagination, part of the reason I didn't do so hot in school. I liked the imagined worlds that I could make in my head, better than the boring one of facts and equations teachers were always trying to drag me to. But the memory of that long hallway bathed in red light, the bodies slumped against the walls, and the screams echoing down the corridor was too vivid for me to think that for long. I just kept driving that night. I didn't stop until I pulled off the road and into this rundown motel somewhere far from everything. I don't know if they will notice that Dr. Zeltita's laptop is gone, and I didn't check in for my shift last night. I kept looking over my shoulder on the way to the vending machine this evening, feeling like I'm in some 70s paranoid thriller. Like any minute, some black van with tinted windows will come peeling into the parking lot, and men in suits wearing glasses will haul me away to a room with a single bright light and a stone-faced interrogator. Maybe I'm being paranoid, but I do know once I post this, once I start posting everything I can get from this hard drive, they will start looking for me. Colonel Castor will start looking for me. I just hope this will get to people, that they will believe it. They need to know. Something very bad is coming. I'm an exorcist. My latest case has me questioning everything I believe. Written by Hyper Obscura. It's with a heavy heart that I'm writing this. Seriously, I've never really considered how much a human heart weighed before holding one in my hand. It makes sense, I suppose. It's like a big old flesh knot of muscles and sinew, after all. Squeezing it repeatedly did nothing to relieve me of the nerve-wracking stress, though. Just a little FYI for you there. It did stain my suit something fierce, though but it was already covered in gallons of violently green vomit, making me, in essence, a walking piece of utterly tasteless abstract art. Some TMI in that FYI there, but I'm a DIY kind of guy, if you catch my drift. Mr. Harris! Mrs. Williams shrieked hysterically. What have you done? She stood in the doorway, pale as an albino ghost, eyes wide with shock. And I couldn't for the life of me stop squeezing her daughter's freshly severed heart. Muscle memory or something. Um, I said. Nervous glances cast at the blood-dripping heart. I think I've messed up big time. Let's rewind just a little bit though, because I'm getting ahead of myself. In medias res, they call it. You know, when you drop the reader right smack in the middle of the story like some kind of deranged lunatic. Always found that to be a cop-out. It needs a little build-up, you know. Nail some pieces of flesh onto the skeleton of your narrative, 
It doesn't need to be fresh. Just need to hang around long enough for the story to make sense. I sat down with Mrs. Williams and her vast countryside estate earlier that day. Our initial correspondence having been conducted solely via use of email. My mails kept ending up in her spam folder though, which made the whole ordeal kind of awkward. But that's what you get for choosing the email address that I have. I feel the need to clarify the name. In this context, it is simply an acronym for coming under my lord, which upon closer inspection really doesn't clarify anything. So, Mrs. Williams, I said, carefully unbinding a very important looking folder. Tell me about your daughter. Susan, Mrs. Williams murmured, her pale face stained with worry and red wine. Her name is Susan. Susan Williams, I noted, raising an eyebrow. Such a grandma name. I'm sorry, Mrs. Williams said, with a tone of slight annoyance. Um, I'm just saying, ma'am, um, can I call you ma'am? Yes. The things, that is to say the demons, are more often than not attracted to weird freaking names. Susan and Williams are both pretty run-of-the-mill. Just a professional observation for ya. Her middle name is Agoraphobia. Ah, I said, scribbling wildly in my notebook. That'll do it, I reckon. It all started about a month ago. Mrs. Williams continued, her head hung low, as if in shame or embarrassment. She started acting differently, throwing tantrums, violent outbursts, things of that nature. So out of character. She was always so sweet and gentle. Yeah, the, um, demons, like a clean old slate for their, um, demonic energy to wreak havoc in. That's why they usually target kids. Or dogs. Dogs? Oh man, yeah, heck yeah. You wouldn't believe how many Cujos I've had to put down. Put down? Anyway, I coughed, and getting up from my chair. Any chance I'll get to see the old spinny head. I don't know if you've caught on yet, but I have this technique where I diffuse an awkward situation by making it even more awkward. Inducing a sort of overload of awkwardness. It never fails, let me tell ya. Miss Williams looked around confusedly, nodded in my general direction, and beckoned for me to follow her. Swanky old place, I noted, admiring all the precious antiques, priceless paintings, lavish marble statues, the unnecessarily large chandeliers, and the general filthy richness of the interior design. Old money, I'm guessing. Blood diamonds, money laundry, maybe? Mrs. Williams gasped audibly and stopped dead in her tracks. Mr. Harris, she snarled viciously. You are out of line. My apologies, ma'am, but it's just uh, another professional observation. You see, the demons are initially drawn to um, insufferable people. Pardon? Despicable human beings. They're drawn to wretched souls like a leech to an eyeball. And you seem alright, a little stuck up maybe. But nothing to write home to the infernal pits about. So I'm guessing your husband, father, dear old grandpappy Williams maybe. Mrs. Williams snorted in contempt, turned around on the dime, 
and continued down the endless hallway at a rather brisk pace. Was it something that I said? I shrugged, hustling after her. We probably turned a dozen corners, sauntered by gorgeous busts of Plato, Aristotle's, Socrates, and for some reason, William Defoe. Before we finally stood outside, Susan Agoraphobia Williams' bedroom, Mrs. Williams knocked gently three times and whispered a hushed, Darling, are you awake? A series of deep, guttural growls from within would indicate that she was. I must warn you, Mr. Harris, Miss Williams said. She is not uh, herself. That's kind of the deal with demonic possessions. I noted professionally, carefully turning the doorknob. A little flashback here. My first case, 12 years ago, a sweet boy named Horgan Schmitty. I sat with him for nine days and eight nights, his head spinning in the old 360 constantly, like some unstoppable human carousel or something. He would vomit and crap too. Classic possession, really. Except that's where these similarities with the movies end. Well, there's also the incessant cursing and messed up blaspheming, but we'll get to that. Anyway, little Horgan, rest in pieces, soon started bursting at the seams. That's what happens when the head spinning in zero-g runs rampant. You gotta control that stuff. Although turned to minced meat sooner than you can say, the power of Christ compels you. Unclean spirit born from the rotting nether womb. I'll screw you and your god in the butt, Horgan growled. Hey, not cool, man, I said, waving my crucifix around theatrically. Not cool. In the bot. I'm not ashamed to say that I let out a rather high-pitched shriek as Horgan's head flew off the body, the bloody thing rolling to a full stop mere inches from my feet. For some reason, I guess maybe instinct, I gave it a forceful kick, and I could do nothing but watch as it soared through the room, crashed through the window, and landed in the middle of the Schmitty's neighbor's lawn. Imagine having to explain that to the boss. The point is, I've since learned to expect everything when dealing with the dark presence, but nothing, I repeat nothing, could have prepared me for what was waiting for me in that godforsaken bedroom. A quick peek, a muffled scream, some vomit to my mouth, and then a quick decision to slam the door shut again. Uh, Mr. Harris... Miss Williams placed a hand on my shoulder. Are you alright? Guyom, yes, I muttered. That's a, that's a stage 5 demonic possession. Pardon? Um, I've, uh, I've actually never seen one before. You can tell by how the child has grown multiple spider-like appendages, some of which have heads of their own. I told you, Mr. Harris, Miss Williams said. She is not herself. Yeah, you weren't kidding. I brushed away her hand, stabilizing myself against the wall. So, right, um, I just need a moment here. Well, we haven't gotten all day. Her father will be home soon, and I would very much like to have this sorted before then. You are insufferable, aren't you? I whispered under my breath. Oh, what was that? I'm gonna need full discretion on this, ma'am. Loose reins. When I go into that room, all bets are off. It's me against those demons. Do you understand? Miss Williams nodded hesitantly. I understand. 
You have my permission to do whatever it takes to liberate my daughter from that wretched thing. Famous last words that. And I sent her on her way, explaining that I needed some privacy to conduct a thorough research of the subject and decide on the details of my exorcistic approach. In reality though, I couldn't risk her eavesdropping on us. Susan? I queried gently, turning the door knob yet again. It's me, um, I mean, I'm Thomas Harris, and I'm here to help you get better. <sighs> the five heads encircling the hovering body of Susan, Agoraphobia Williams, growled in unison. The Black Father. And the sight of her was enough to send me sprawling to the floor, heaving for my breath. I've been scared out of my mind before, you know. It comes with the territory, I guess, but nothing quite like this. She was hovering in midair over her bed. A classic white nightgown draped across a rotting body. Head snapped at an awkward angle. Five jet black appendages, all spindly and hairy and horrible as heck, protruded from her abdomen, at the end of which were five mangled and misshapen heads. They looked kind of like what you would expect a human head split down the middle would look like. You know, all skin and flesh flapping around an exposed brain. Eyes dangling down the sides from worm-like tendrils. Shh, I murmured, face buried in a rather expensive carpet. Um, the monster might still hear us. A bit of backstory is required here. I do apologize, though. I really didn't plan this post beforehand. Thus, I'm kind of all over the place with my narrative design. It all makes sense in the end, though. Scout's honor. It all started with my grandmother, Winona Petroluma Harris, a heartless hag, a voice like a pig amid slaughter, but a blood relative all the same. In any case, she truly despised my grandpa, Bertrand, and as such, she made it her life's mission to have him murdered. I can respect that, you know. We've all been there. We don't all sleep around with demons to make it happen, though. Long story short... There is a very real chance that I've got some demon blood in me, and my family has been working for the Netherlords ever since. Me? I'm what you call the Black Father. It's a cool title for an utterly crap job. In essence, I'm little but a glorified babysitter, posing as a man of the cloth, an exorcist, to ensure that the possessed host survives the demonic transformation. We are Legion. The head hissed. And we are many. We will not hold our tongues. Legion, I asked. There's like barely a handful of you. Silence. Um, right, uh, I mumbled, staggering to my feet. The point is, you're killing the host. She won't survive it. That is your problem, father. All I'm asking is, um, I dared a quick glance at one of the heads but immediately regretted it. Gah, that you, uh, slow down, you know. Denied, the heads growled, instantly erupting in violent fountains of projectile vomit, the majority of which was aimed in my general direction. I took quite a few gallons to my suit, and the increasing pressure of unparalleled upchuck quickly sent me back to the floor, kneeling before the regurgitating legion. It was almost ripe for the popping by the looks of it. That's when the demon fully emerges, ripping the human host in pieces, 
as the dark presence squeezes all the way from hell into our reality. As long as the host lives through the initial stages, it's all good. But if the child or dog should die before that, well, let's just say that demons don't enjoy being half in and half out. Um, fine, I said. Just a few more minutes and you should be good. I'll just uh, drag her down, strap her to the bed maybe, restrain those G-forces and all that. Acceptable. I kept my eyes on the ground as I slowly made my way toward the bed. The drip, drip, drip of vomit and other bodily fluids the only sound in the room. I reached out and armed blindly, soon enough grabbing a hold of Susan's right ankle. I proceeded to drag her down to the bed, strapped her down using the bed sheets and took a few steps back. And then I heard her, Thomas, an inhuman voice emerging from Susan's throat uttered, They're lying to you. I would recognize that voice anywhere. Sounded exactly like a pig mid slaughter. Grandma? I mumbled, staring at the girl in utter perplexity. The squirming heads danced back and forth in the air hypnotically, but they seemed strangely distant. Susan's body had started convulsing and jarring spasms, and I knew that we didn't have much time before she would pop. I don't have much time, Thomas. Grandma explained. I can't hold them back for long. We've been had, my boy. You're not of Satan's bloodline. None of you are. And they won't spare you. Uh, it's a lot to take in there, Grandma. I'm not sure that I follow. The Legion is the start. Thomas, you imbecile. He is coming. And he'll wear your sack of crap like a necktie if you don't stop him. Um, stop him how? Take the child out for a start. Take her heart. Mom, it sounds a bit extreme, bordering on insane. Oh, I'm so sorry, Thomas. Is it too much? Do you find the prospect of hurting a child to save the world to be a step too far? Uh, I mean, yes. Well, forget your feelings, Thomas. It's the only way. But you have to do it right now. Frick's sake, Grams, I murmured, digging around in my suitcase for my ceremonial dagger. Enough! The five heads suddenly boomed, the sonic outburst causing me to stumble back confusedly. We will not be deceived. A little bit too late there, Legion, I grinned, pointing at the dagger sticking out of the child's heart. I guess it's limbo life for you lads. Man, pass it. The heads, along with the spindly appendages, oozed black pus and slime for a split second, before turning to mushy flesh goop before my eyes. After swallowing some emerging upchuck, I quickly leapt toward the body of Susan Agoraphobia Williams and carved out her still-beating heart, just like sweet old Grams had instructed. This is so messed up, I whispered to myself, Squeezing the heart deliriously like it was a squishy old stress ball. Mr. Harris, Miss Williams shrieked hysterically. What have you done? And here we are then. Back to the beginning of my riveting tale. The full circle, as it were. Masterful storytelling, if I do say so myself. Moving on then, I gently handed Susan's heart over to her mother. 
poor thing still pale as an albino ghost in the doorway. I gotta say though, man, I've done some messed up stuff in my line of work, no doubt, but nothing quite like that. We're coming for you, Black Father. Miss Williams whispered into my ear as we awkwardly parted ways. And we're gonna get you and your god in the butt. Not cool, man. Not cool. My ex-husband just escaped from prison. I helped the FBI prove he was a monster. Written by Luke Hemingway. I stared vacantly, wide-eyed at nothing in particular. My ears rang. The only sound penetrating my fugue state was the sound of my thumping heart pulsating the blood around my trembling body. The droning monotones of the federal agent's voices droned in my head, like someone was screaming at me as I sank below the skin of a pool of water. Amy, are you okay? And do you need me to call an ambulance? Special Agent Rodriguez asked, concerned. I turned to him, trying to tune back into the land of the living. I managed to shake my head in disagreement. No, no, I, I just need a minute, I murmured. I know this is a lot to take in, but I need you to give me the green light to get you and your children under federal witness protection. Agent Quinson to Agent Bodkins here will take you, Ashley, and Sadie to a safe house until we have him under arrest and back in prison, where he belongs. The agent's tone was sincere. How did he escape? I thought he was in maximum security. You told me that he was in Florence. You told me that he would never see the light of day again. You told me this nightmare was over. I began to lose it, going off on a tangent. Agent Rodriguez held his palms up to me, as if apologizing for his promise coming back to haunt him, but also to try to get me to calm down. The agent poised himself. At around 2 a.m. this morning, your ex-husband, Robert Cassidy, killed two Florence prison guards, viciously assaulted a nurse, and stole their uniforms and key passes in the process. It seems that Cassidy has collected various items over a period of time, such as vinegar, baking soda, and a couple of man-made shivs. Mindy also did his homework. He learned the guard's schedules, the prison protocols and procedures. He even waited until the fewest and less experienced guards were on duty that night. Everything was planned to the letter. Around 1am, Cassidy faked a seizure using the vinegar and soda mixture. There was a young guard on duty, who once, seeing a prisoner spasming on the floor, foaming from the mouth, simply opened his cell and ran in to apply first aid. I don't know whether it was his greenness or poor training, or just the panic of the situation, but the kid didn't raise the medical alarm or call for assistance first, and Cassidy had anticipated this. The staff found the guard under the bedsheets to create the appearance of someone sleeping, and he was wearing Cassidy's prison attire. He was found with a shiv wound to his abdomen, and his neck was badly broken. Once he had his disguise, he made his way off the wing using the key passes. Once he was getting towards the staff and visitors area of the prison, Cassidy waited in the staff bathroom. Here, he ambushed another guard. 
Cassidy threatened him with a shiv, ordering him to put out a message that an inmate had escaped from a wing on the opposite side of the prison. The staff member agreed to comply, but once he had sent out the message, Cassidy did him in too. Not sure if Cassidy had a grudge against this man or he was just in a frenzy from being locked up for 30 months, but they found that guard in one of the cubicles with 27 wounds to his neck and face. His left ear and right cheek were bitten off, and his skull was badly fractured. It was a mess by all accounts. Anyway, the false announcement did what Cassidy had wanted it to do. With all the commotion happening, the main body of the guards were concentrated towards the opposite side of the prison. While this was happening, Cassidy defrauded his way into the staff medical room of the prison, using his now-acquired blood-soaked uniform as a way of conning the nurse to let him inside for medical care. She told us in her statement that Cassidy claimed the escaped prisoners had stabbed him and that he needed urgent medical assistance. But the nurse obviously didn't recognize him. I mean, why would she? She said once inside, he had assaulted her. He didn't kill her, obviously, but the staff found her in bad shape. And Cassidy then stole her car keys, her ID pass, and the nurse's uniform. He smashed the fire alarm glass and used her uniform and pass to make his way out of the prison with these staff who were evacuating to a place of safety. And we found the nurse's car earlier this evening. It was wrecked in a ditch on Route 85. He's been in the wind for 20 hours now. He could literally be anywhere by now, but there's a huge possibility that he could be coming for you or the girls. I sighed heavily in disbelief. You told me that if I helped you, that it would be over. And now you're telling me that me and my girls have to go on the run because that animal had managed to escape the most secure prison in the U.S., the agent sighed in defeat. Yes, I know, Amy. Texas has the death penalty, so we thought he would have had the needle by now. But that crafty guy hit over ten girls' bodies, traded the locations to the DA for life in prison. He was locked up in Florence for two and a half years until last night. He's been planning his escape ever since that we had locked him up. Now he's out, and he's out for blood. So I need to know... Where is Ashley right now? She's at university in Denver. She's in Colorado. The agent looked horrified. He pulled his radio for his belt and began organizing his agents outside, ordering them to get a convoy prepared to head to Denver, ASAP. I jumped up. Please, let me go with you. If Robert is still in Colorado, then Ashley is in danger. So please... Send this Sadie with your team and get her out of San Antonio. Get her somewhere safe. And then, when I have Ashley back with me, safe in my arms, then we can meet up with Sadie at the safe house until this is over. I begged the agent. Honestly, Amy, I don't think that's wise. I think you should stay with our agents and... No, I'm not going to sit in some safe house surrounded by armed federal guards while my baby girl is out there unprotected. Unaware her psychopath of a stepfather is on the loose. Take Sadie, your team can keep her safe. While me and you go and get Ashley. I bartered. Amy, I really don't think. The agent began to deny me before I cut him off. Look, I did what I did for you. Now, you're going to do this for me. 
I demanded and my position was final. The agent nodded in defeat. Okay, he breathed. Is there any chance that Cassidy could know where Ashley is? I thought hard, but eventually shook my head with confidence. No, Ashley left for college one year after Robert's sentence. There's no way he should know. Good, then let's get going, the agent said. A touch of haste to his exit. I left my house and with it, my youngest daughter in the arms of eight highly trained federal agents. Sadie being only five years old, she was young enough for me to have to believe that she was Ashley's full sister. I always told her that her father was the same as her older sisters. My first husband wasn't perfect, but at least he wasn't a psychopath. However, nevertheless, if Robert was going to be coming for anyone, it would be her. As I tried to call Ashley's mobile phone, unsuccessfully by the way, I laughed at the irony of the fact that when I'm with Ashley, she is constantly on her device. Yet, when I need to give her some urgent news, she is conveniently unavailable. However, I couldn't help reminisce about my life up until this point. I met Robert Cassidy when I was 35. I had recently just gotten divorced from my first husband, Ashley's father, Jeff Benning. Jeff had always been a bit of a control freak. He was very old-fashioned, expecting me to cook clean and keep my mouth shut when he was watching the game. As our relationship soared over the years, he had given me the odd smack around, picked at my aging and sagging body, as well as got drunk and slept with other women behind my back. We divorced six years ago, after I finally got up the courage and strength to walk away from him. Ashley was only 11 years when me and Jeff went our separate ways. He tried to manipulate her into going with him. Ashley was very much a daddy's girl. He was quite successful in turning her against me. Thankfully, I was able to obtain proof of his violent, drunk behavior, as well as evidence of his infidelity. I took him for full custody of our child and half of his financials during the proceedings. I used the money to get away from Phoenix and set up a new life in San Antonio. After just a few months of sulking and feeling sorry for myself and my new single life, I decided it was time to get my glad rags on and get back on the dating scene. I had seen a poster advertising a single speed dating evening at a local bar. I thought, what the heck of it, and that night I got dressed up, put makeup on for the first time in three years and made myself presentable for the bachelors of South Texas. I sat in that bar, nursing a lukewarm bottle of Coors Light, all the while listening to every 40-year-old virgin talk about their comic book collection, every mama's boy spending more time on the phone telling me how there's room in his mother's basement for the both of us, every self-obsessed attention seeker who only wants to talk about themselves, and the painfully obvious lies about their lives, but it didn't matter, because when I did manage to come across a man who actually bordered on normal, no matter how interested they seemed, once I told them about how I was a single mother with a preteen, I had lost them. I was just about to give up on the night when, all of a sudden, my final speed day to the evening had dropped himself on the seat opposite me. He was the most gorgeous thing I had ever seen. 
his perfectly formed face, his square jawline which was cleanly shaved, yet took nothing away from his masculine appearance. His jet black hair was gelled in traditional 1960s slick back hairstyle. He had a highly athletic build. I imagined that he was a swimmer or a boxer in his spare time. He wore this muscle-fitted black shirt as well, as he wore his aura of self-assurance. His musky scent had my knees trembling. I didn't stand a chance. I guess the saying is true. If something seems too good to be true, then it probably is. I sometimes chuckle at how true that statement applied to Robert Cassidy. My relationship blossomed almost immediately. He was everything I needed at that point in my life. He was kind, charming, and passionate. He told me that I was beautiful and sexy. He told me that my ex-husband was an idiot for not appreciating what he had. He made me feel like I was 19 again. I don't know whether it was the fact that I was vulnerable, naive, stupid, or a combination of all three. But he was living with me and Ashley in a matter of weeks. He gave me some sob story about how he had just moved to San Antonio after his own messy divorce. His ex-wife had taken him for everything, so he didn't have a fixed address and he was in between motels. Robert was extremely vague about his past and his previous marriage. I never questioned it. I was simply too giddy that a handsome and charming man wanted me. Within six months, I fell pregnant to him with Sadie. This was when the alarm bells began to ring. He refused to undertake in anything that involved his background being examined or his picture being taken for his social media. I told myself that he was really just looking for a fresh start, as I could understand that. However, as I lay at home getting bigger and bigger, was Robert tending to my every need? Was he telling me that no matter how much my body was changing, he would always love me? Well, no and no. In fact, his time spent with me became very sparing. When I was around seven months pregnant with Sadie, Robert claimed that he was going to finally get a job in order to help with the financial strain that the baby would put on us. I used my divorce settlement to buy him a car so that he could take up currying work. I thought he was finally trying to pitch in after me supporting him for the past year. However, this was just another one of his lies. He would be gone for days, even weeks at a time. He would come back after such periods of time with a bit of money in his pocket and a smile on his face. The money rarely found my hand or one of our bills. He would invest in new clothes, fresh jewelry, or something else that he refused to disclose. He got to a point in our relationship where asking too many questions made Robert's superficial mask of charm and sanity slip. Just for a split second, he showed me the monster that lie underneath. When he didn't attend the birth of Sadie because he was too busy on another work trip in Kansas, I knew that this was going to be the pattern of our relationship from now on. Unexplained absences, missing backstory, brief displays of vile hate and anger at being dared to be questioned by a pathetic little person such as myself. It wasn't all that bad though. Robert gave me the odd glimpses of the early days, just enough so I wouldn't think this horrible version of him wasn't permanent. In retrospect, 
It was just his way of keeping me around. Plus, when Jeff eventually moved to Texas, mainly to keep tabs on me and the girls, he would come around, mainly demanding to see Ashley. He would speak down to me, at which point Robert would step in. He could crush Jeff like an ant with a simple icy glare. Jeff would never say it out loud, but Robert scared the crap out of him. I'm not ashamed to say that I got some pleasure out of that at the time, but it did make one thing abundantly clear. Jeff, despite being a bully, an abuser, and just a full-on dick, even he could see that Robert Cassidy was pure evil. Me and Agent Rodriguez climbed into a blacked-out SUV along with two other agents and took off towards Denver. I sat in the back of the vehicle, desperately trying to contact Ashley. I assumed that she must have left her phone in her dorm room while her college buddies went to a bar. I hoped that was the case anyway, but to be perfectly honest, she rarely had time for me. As the car tore towards the New Mexico border, Agent Rodriguez's phone began to shine to life. The agent answered, putting the call on speaker. The voice was that of a detective from the Dallas Police Department. Agent Rodriguez, it's Detective Dan Hepworth here, Dallas PD. I think you will have dealt with one of my colleagues, Detective Earnshaw. Yeah, that's right, where is he? The agent asked, slightly confused. Oh, they have been reassigned so I've taken over this caseload. You asked me to send an officer to Jeff Benning's home in order to keep a check on him. The detective explained with fluency. Yes, I did. Have you managed to get someone out there? The agent asked. Yeah, I did. I'm sorry, agent, but he's dead. The detective said bluntly. The agent winced. What happened? He asked, sounding tentative. A little on edge about the potential response. Well, I don't know how to say this, but, well, the officer I sent had just radioed in. He said that he thought he saw some lurking around the back of the property on his arrival, so he went to investigate. He found the back door ajar and inside he found Mr. Benning dead. The detective sounded empty. I, meanwhile, crumbled. I hated Jeff for what he became, how he treated me, and the things that he did and what he said to me. But there was a time that I loved him. We were married. We had a child together. I brought Robert Cassidy into our lives. I was to blame. Agent, you should know. Benning showed signs of torture. There is a lot of damage here. Benning clearly didn't give him what he wanted straight away. But he obviously wanted information and now he's got it. Fair play to the guy. Benning put up a good fight. His car's gone too. He's got what he wanted. Information and a vehicle. He's on the move. Crap. Special Agent Rodriguez punched the steering wheel anger before exhaling his stress. Okay, thanks, Detective. Keep me updated. I'm sorry to be the bearer of bad news, Agent. Please. Are there any other people that need protecting from this animal? I would be happy to send an officer or two to help out. He told him where Ashley is. I chipped in, looking at Agent Rodriguez square in the eye via the rearview mirror. The agent's eyes widened oh so slightly, and he stopped the gas pedal hard as he barked orders down the phone. Yes, Detective, I am currently en route to Denver to retrieve Ashley Bennings. 
and we believe that is where Robert Cassidy is heading. I will be redirecting a lot of my team from the safe house guarding Sadie Bennings in order to apprehend him. Me and Mrs. Edmonds would feel a lot better if you could send an officer or two to assist the two agents at the safe house. Absolutely. Send me the safe house location and I'll get someone right over. Detective Hepworth sounded like a man with all the enthusiasm you would want to hear from a police officer. He really wanted to help. Send it in now, detective. Oh, and Dan, send your best. Robert Cassidy is one of the most dangerous men on the planet. He's ruthless, vicious, but most of all, he's highly intelligent. He kind his way out of the most secure prison in the U.S. with some vinegar and a prison uniform. I sure will, agent. Good luck in Denver. The detective offered his best wishes before hanging up the phone. Agent Rodriguez redialed another number as he began to notice that we were turning around. A voice answered, This is Special Agent Rodriguez. Robert Cassidy has been sighted in Dallas, Texas. He has killed Ashley Benning's father, Jeff, tortured him before he killed him, most likely for Ashley's location. He's taken a car, so we believe he's heading for Denver. I need you to send five agents to meet me at San Antonio International Airport. I have a helicopter arranged. We won't risk flying. We can get there hours before him and we will be ready for him. You and Bod can stay with Sadie. I've got a few Dallas PD officers coming to assist you soon. Call me if anything comes up. Agent hung up the phone and sighed with relief. It obviously felt good to finally have a pin down on Robert's movements and have his response planned accordingly. I stared out of the window, wondering how on earth my life came to this. It seemed like only yesterday when I first began to realize just who Robert Cassidy was. Around two years into our relationship, not long after Sadie's first birthday actually, Robert continued to be absent for periods of time, usually claiming that he was on work trips. He would miss key events like anniversaries, birthdays, Thanksgivings, Christmas, you name it. At first, I thought he was cheating on me. I mean, why wouldn't he? Jeff did. And Robert was the most gorgeous man that I had ever met. When he had returned from one of his trips, I waited until he had left the house. I began going through his things, expecting to find some used condoms, hairs from another woman, shirts smelling of perfume, you get the point. I never found anything though. However, what I did find was puzzling. His clothes were clean, unscented, unmarked. It was like they were new. But eventually, that's when I realized it was because they were. On this particular occasion of me inspecting his suitcase, I noticed that Robert had forgotten to remove the price tag off one of his shirts. So I went digging in his pockets, in his coats, and then in his car. There is where I finally found something. It was a receipt for a clothing store in Birmingham, Alabama. Robert had purchased around five shirts and three pairs of pants, the precise amount of clothes that he had left with. I gently confronted him about the receipt, telling him that I innocently found it while cleaning the car. He didn't rattle. He began to smoothly explain that he had simply had a bad nosebleed and that it had ruined his clothing. I would have accepted that explanation, but one thing played on my mind. 
and so I countered and asked him why he needed to replace every shirt. And that's when the mask slipped for the very first time. Robert's surface of suave, charm, and charisma cracked before my very eyes. His brow lowered, his smile dropped, and his pupils dilated. Have you been looking through my things, Amy? His menacing tone paralyzed me. He started to advance on me, backing me right up against the bedroom wall. His eyes bored holes in my soul. He grabbed my wrist and squeezed hard. It began to hurt as the blood started to cut off from my hand and it began to throb. It was as if he was trying to detect any lies by feeling my pulse. I quivered. No, I'm sorry, Robert. I'm sorry I wasn't snooping, I promise. Please, you're hurting me. I begged him to stop. I could see by Robert's face that he had enjoyed my fear. It pleased him. It excited him. No, you were questioning me. You were calling me a liar. There was a venom behind his restraint. No, I promise I wasn't. I was just trying to do something nice. Tidy the car for you. Put your things away. I was just being a good wife. Please stop. He eventually let go. I dropped to my knees and cradled my swollen hand. I looked up at Robert as he stood over me, looking down at his pathetic wife. I waited for him to strike me, as I cowered but instead, his menacing, emotionless glare, transformed back to the superficial, charming smile that my friends and family had come to know and love. I appreciate the gesture, but there was no need, my love. In fact, I have another bit of work, you see, all the way in Atlanta. So, I'm gonna head out. Maybe hit the casino. Meanwhile, you're going to put all those clothes back in that case and have it packed and ready for me when I get back. You understand? I nodded, tears bursting through my clenched eyelids. Robert's fake smile made my blood turn cold, as I imagined the monster underneath. And then, just like that, he was gone leaving me wondering who or what Robert Cassidy really was. I began to search online for people who appeared to be friendly and charming on the surface, but underneath, they seemed not all there. The reoccurring word that kept coming up was psychopath. I thought psychopaths were crazy people who were locked up in mental hospitals and headbutted walls, but turns out that they are something far more sinister. There are wolves dressed as a sheep. I read an article written by Dr. Hare at the University of British Columbia, in which it talked about a test or a checklist that he had developed in order to identify if someone was a psychopath or had a psychopathic tendencies. I went down the list and assessed Robert's behavior. Superficial charm, check. Inflated sense of self-worth, check. Pathological lies, Check. When I told him to get a job that didn't involve so much traveling, he would say that I was controlling him, making him give up a job that made him happy. He made me feel like I was the controlling burden. Manipulative behavior. Check. On one of the rare occasions that Robert was home, which were very rare I might add, the one incident that really sticks in my mind was when we were sat in the living room watching a news report about a couple who were attempting to raise money for a terminally ill child in order to give him a trip to Disneyland. 
I felt heartbroken watching this mother just wanting enough money to take her dying baby boy on one last family vacation before she lost him forever. But Robert sat watching the people, totally emotionless. The only time he spoke was when he accused the couple of fake crying on TV, simply because they wanted a free holiday. He then added that it was pointless giving money to someone who would be dead soon. His lack of compassion chilled me. The fact that I had just given birth to this man's child. He had a baby just like these people and yet, he didn't see the point of giving just a few dollars to a couple of complete strangers. So they could give their little boy one last shred of happiness before he passed away. Lack of empathy. Check. Robert Cassidy, my husband was a psychopath. I read that psychopaths make up 1% of the population. Interestingly, most of them actually live normal lives. And don't get me wrong, they're pretty much dicks. Thieves, conmen, womanizers, but most of them aren't violent. They never physically hurt anyone. At this point, I honestly convinced myself that Robert was in that category. That was until two weeks later. When the news report aired, covering the brutal assault of Violet Walsh. Violet Walsh was a 20-year-old student who went missing in Montgomery, Alabama. Her body was found three days after her disappearance in Oak Mountain State Park, just outside of Birmingham. She was last seen leaving her college dorm around 9pm. She told her roommate that she was going to see her boyfriend, and informed her that she would be back in the morning. Violet never returned home that morning, causing her roommate to become concerned. When questioned, the boyfriend claimed that she had never arrived that evening, and he just assumed that she had blown him off for the night. The news report informed the audience that they couldn't go into much detail regarding the specifics of this horrifying case, but they said that the killer had abducted Violet, taken her to a remote location in the park, and committed the heinous acts of violence over the course of a few hours. As the broadcast went on, my heart began to pound harder and harder as each piece of significant information was like a nail being hammered into my chest. They said the nature of this case matched the MO of around 20 other murders involving young women throughout a number of locations in the United States. The locations that they listed were all locations that Robert had worked since he got his job. The news reporter went on to inform the audience that the FBI were looking for a man in connection with the offenses, that they had dubbed him the Cross Lines Cannibal. The pseudonym was based on the fact that his crimes crossed state lines as well, as the violent nature of the murders themselves. I sat there, convincing myself that this was purely circumstantial, this could have all been but just a string of haunting coincidences. But then they brought up the suspect sketch. My heart fell into my stomach as soon as I saw that drawing. It was Robert. His slicked back hair, his square jaw, his piercing green eyes, his perfectly molded nose. I pulled out the laptop and Google searched the drawing. The drawing was actually done by Kansas State PD. Around 14 months before the Violet Walsh murder, the sketch had been drawn when another girl, Julie Deveron, was found dumped in an alley in Park City, Kansas, her body in bad shape and a similar fashion to the other victims. 
A man was seen leaving the vicinity shortly after the murder was thought to have taken place. A witness told KSPD that they had seen a man leaving the area with blood splattered around his mouth, neck, and chest. The witness asked him if he was okay or if he needed an ambulance. The man reportedly said, Yeah, I'm fine. It's just a nosebleed. Before making a hasty retreat from the area. When I read that line, I collapsed. I was astounded and horrified by the revelation that my husband, my actual husband, was the most wanted killer in North America. I continued to Google myself into a frenzy, learning the horrible details of all the brutal and unspeakable things that Robert had done over the course of the last decade. From the official FBI website, I learned that the cross-line cannibal was suspected to have been responsible for over 23 murders across 17 different states. They provided a phone number for anyone with information and offered a $100,000 reward for anyone who had information leading to his arrest. It took a few weeks to overcome the denial, but eventually, I picked up the phone. Rodriguez broke the silence. I'm sorry about Jeff. Horrible way for a man to go. I wiped a tear that had broken from my iris. It's okay. He wasn't very nice to me, but you know, there was a time when he was. He was the father to one of my kids. I didn't like Jeff very much, but in a strange way, I think there's a small part of me that will always love him. And for him to go like that, I winced, unable to finish my thought pattern, nor my sentence. The agent noticed my self-pity. He saw me becoming frustrated with myself for letting Robert Cassidy into my head, allowing him to affect me in such a way. I just don't know if I can do this again. I brought this man into our lives. I got my ex-husband killed. Now my daughters are at risk. I just can't face him again. I just can't. I began to cry. Let me tell you something that I've never told anyone. The agent offered me a break from thinking about Jeff and what Robert did to him. And I took it. Go on, I invited when we were looking for the cross-line cannibal, I just thought that he was another killer out there. Finds women, takes advantage of them, and kills them. All in their own, special little way. All to get the world talking and make them feel special. You know, once you've seen one, you've kind of seen them all. But if we're going to be honest here, the day that we raided your house to arrest Cassidy and take him into custody, I knew the minute that I read him right that he was something else entirely. When we took him to Florence and me and Quincy got him in the interrogation room, I didn't see a man who had done bad things, or a classroom textbook serial killer. No, I saw a very bad man who loved to do even worse things. He would talk about every sick and twisted thing he did to his victims, and he did it like he was talking about how he ties his shoelaces. I've had all types of criminals in that room, you name it. Yet never in my life, never have I met one that I could say combined them all. For the first time in my life, the man across from me terrified me. I think that's because I wasn't even sure that he was a man. We had to interview that man for nearly seven hours while he teased the district attorney into dropping the death penalty. And in return, he would give us the locations of a number of burial sites 
Here, we would find the bodies of ten missing girls. Anyway, Amy, my point is that for every minute of every one of those seven hours, I was scared. It didn't matter that he was chained to a desk and had two armed officers aiming pistols at him. He made me shiver. His coldness, his maniacal chuckle, the way that he licked his lip every time he spoke about tearing flesh from women's necks with his bare teeth. When the DA gave him life instead of death, I'm not ashamed to say that I whimpered. Because I know, while ever that man is alive, he's a risk to everyone that he meets. The agent said, staring vacantly forward. I know, I added. But yet, when we told you that all we had was circumstantial evidence, that we needed a confession to catch him, we asked you if you would wear a wire. And do you remember what you told me? No, not really. You said, Agent, uh, I brought this man into my children's lives. I am their mother and I would do anything to get him back out again. I would do anything I need to. You weren't scared. You weren't deterred. You were focused. So please, Amy, don't let him get in your head. You took him down once and you can do it again. You're the strongest and bravest woman that I know. Much braver than me. But together we can stop him. So let's go do it. The agent said, smiling at the end. I appreciated his kind words. I appreciated the pep talk. It was definitely needed. And Amy, the agent began to add. I looked up at him. He's killed three people and assaulted another that we know of. We catch him in this time. There will be no deals, no trades or excuses. He will be sentenced to death. We shared a tense stare, both willing each other to focus. If we got to Ashley before Robert, we could catch him and all this would finally be over. The plane landed at Denver International Airport at 9pm. As soon as I turned my mobile phone on, I attempted to contact Ashley, but her phone was still going to voicemail. I began to imagine the ways that I would kill her when I eventually saw her. Agent Rodriguez began calling around as our vehicle toward high speeds towards the university. He arranged for the Denver Police Department to send officers to the university and get Ashley into protective custody and search for any sign of Robert Cassidy. No one spoke as we were all mentally preparing for the showdown that was about to happen. Agent Rodriguez's ringtone suddenly broke the silence, making all the agents and myself gently startle in our seats. He answered the phone. Hey there, I've got an officer Dave Miles here, saying that he's been sent to assist us. Says he's been sent by a detective, Dan Hepworth. Says that you should know all about it. Agent Quince questioned. Yeah, that's fine. Is he on his own? Rodriguez asked. There was some indistinct conversation that was inaudible to us, before Quince replied. Yeah, just him. Says Hepworth is sending some more, though, and that they're on their way. Okay, that's fine. Just make sure you check IDs upon entry and stay vigilant. We'll be in touch once we are set up at the university. Rodriguez instructed before saying his official goodbyes and hanging up. I asked for assistance in guarding a defenseless child from the most horrible killer since John Gacy and what do they do? They send one officer. One. The agent shook his head in disgust. 
Budgets must be stretched again, I assume, he quipped. The other agents chuckled in agreement. How much longer until we're at the university? I asked. Rodriguez checked the satellite navigation. Uh, 15 minutes. Don't worry, Amy. I just got word that the police are at the campus right now. They have set up checkpoints at the campus, clocking everyone who enters and exits the site. The other officers are looking for Ashley as we speak. There's no way that he's got there before us, unless he's driving the Millennium Falcon. Then we've got at least two hours on him. Best get your foot down then, I instructed, not in the mood for jokes. We pulled up at the university campus at 9.35pm, where we were greeted by a large collection of Denver police. There must have been over 30 officers swarming the campus. Some were checking in vehicles and students as they passed through the checkpoints, while others were patrolling and interviewing with people passing by. We got out of the vehicle and headed over to what I assumed was the commanding officer. Agent Rodriguez approached him. Are you in charge? He said, as he held out his badge. Yeah, welcome special agent. Lieutenant Stanley Watkins, Denver PD. We spoke on the phone, he replied. Of course, well, I gotta say I'm really impressed by your precinct's response. Other department's response to this has been a little lackluster. I asked for some Dallas officers to attend an at-risk person at their home, and they sent one guy and he got there late. I asked for some more officers to assist my agents at a safe house in Fort Worth, and again, they only sent one. Can't get the staff some days, can you? It's disgraceful, truly. I followed the two men as they made their way into the building. They continued conversing. Any sights of either Ashley or Cassidy, the agent asked. Negative on both fronts. No sign of Mr. Cassidy. In regards to the girl, her room is empty. No sign of Miss Benning or her roommate. We're going around the whole campus and asking for any witnesses who know of their whereabouts. The officer answered. Well, what does that mean? Was there any sign of a break-in or a struggle? Where's my baby girl? I intervened, slightly losing it. My outburst combined with the agent and the officer both trying to settle me was interrupted by a mouthy and dinky young woman with jet black hair and soft gothic makeup. She was marching towards us, stomping her feet, shouting the odds. Oi, why is the 5-0 doing trash in my room? I ain't done nothing. She really was fuming. You're Ashley Benning's roommate, the agent asked. Yo, this is about Ashley. What's she done now? I'll kill her. My things are everywhere, she roared at the agent. She's not done anything. There's someone dangerous on the loose that may not only have Ashley's location, but also a reason to harm her. Do you know where she is? It's really important that we get her into protection. The lieutenant informed her. Where's my daughter? You must know where she is. She isn't answering her phone. The girl looked at me and her anger washed away once she saw my expression and realized the gravity of the situation. She went on a date, told me to not wait up. She said with a reserved tone. With who? I asked with my heart in my mouth. I don't know. She was talking to him on Tinder today. He invited her to meet tonight. She said his name was Roman. That's all I know. Is she in danger? She began to sound as worried as I did. We all looked at each other. I think so. 
The agent responded honestly. We ran as fast as we could back to the SUV. The lieutenant agreed that he would get their department to gain access to Ashley's cell records and try to find the last number that she had called. As soon as he had a location, he would be in touch. We hopped in the vehicle and began to make our way to the beltway, ready to head in any direction that we needed. The call came through quicker than I had expected. Agent Rodriguez's phone once again let up and jingled, and the agent hit the green button with haste. Yes, Lieutenant. What do you have for us? The call's from a burner. It's unregistered. We don't know who it belongs to, but the cell phone is still turned on. And the last tower that we got a signal off of was at 70th Avenue, Adam City. And before that, it pinged off a tower near Sand Creek Landfill. The lieutenant went quiet as he assessed his knowledge of the city of Denver. It looks like he's potentially heading to the Rocky Mountain Refuge Park. The lieutenant's tone didn't sound like he was guessing. He sounded confident, but trailed off as he realized the gravity of his words. Ever since he was seen that night in Park City, every Cassidy victim was found in a remote woodland area. The agents tried their best to not look me in the eye as I winced to my seat, wondering what horrific state we may find Ashley in if we don't get there fast enough. A convoy consisting of the FBI's SUV sandwiched by two Denver PD cars hit the blue lights and tore down the 25 at breakneck speed. I could see the agents checking and loading their weapons. I had no weapon. I had no lieutenant to liaise with. I was simply alone. Alone with my thoughts and my doubts. As we pulled up at the parking lot of 96th Avenue, the convoy swarmed into the park, looking for any sign of Robert or Ashley. Immediately, we noticed a single vehicle on the lot. The feds and the cops made their way over, guns drawn. The vehicle was gently tilting and rocking. Someone was inside. This is the FBI. If anyone is there, please make it known as we are armed. Rodriguez warned. The vehicle began to move more vigorously now. We all approached cautiously. One of the officers carefully made his way around the side of the vehicle, again, weapon at the ready. He looked through the window. My heart was in my mouth. Get off the girl! The officer saw something that alarmed him. He pointed the weapon into the back seat. I, along with the agents and other officers, ran over to assist. I could see there is a figure in the back seat mounting someone and I could hear a deep male voice powering over a muffled whine of a female. Get out of the vehicle with your hands up, another officer ordered. The rocking of the vehicle continued and two voices began to get louder. Enough was enough. With two federal agents covering them with weapons up, one of the officers ripped open the car door and pulled the man by the scruff of his collar backwards, out of the car and onto the dirt. The man who was exposing himself scuttled on the ground, desperately trying to get to his feet with his trousers around his knees. As he finally got to his feet, dressed himself and looked up, he found that he had around seven pistols aimed at him. On your knees, now, now! One of the officers kicked the back of his knees, causing his legs to fold and therefore complying with the order. He looked around, embarrassed, shocked and scared. He was also young, blonde, and pale. 
It wasn't Robert. Hey, what the heck is going on? A half-dressed tart came stumbling out of the car, realigning her skirt. Get off him, she added. Ashley, I snapped sharply. That tart was my daughter. God, Mom, what are you doing here? She asked, mortified. Despite my anger at her behavior, I ran to her and hugged her. I had tears in my eyes. I was just happy to see that she was okay. Mom, what on earth are you doing here? What's going on? Why are you with the FBI? Ashley didn't know which question to ask first. I closed my eyes for a second as I gulped, before staring her dead in the eye. It's Robert, I said. Her eyes widened as she turned her head slightly, as if bracing for what I was about to say next. He's escaped. As soon as the last syllable left my lips, Ashley broke. After 15 minutes consisting of calming Ashley down and introducing me to her friend, Roman Manning, and the police releasing him from gunpoint, Roman left in his car, and Ashley jumped in the back of the SUV with me and Agent Rodriguez. Your sister is in a safe house in Fort Worth, and that's where we're going now, and we're going to stay there until they catch him, I informed her. That's right, I'm going to escort you and your mother back to Texas. And my team is going to stay here and wait for Cassidy to expose himself. We strongly believe that he is here. The agent informed Ashley as he started the car and pulled onto the highway. Okay, I don't understand though. Why would you think that he would come for me? He wouldn't know that I was in Denver. Her question caught me off guard. I wasn't ready to give her the answer and she sensed it. Me and the agent shared a concerned look. He nodded to me as if to tell me honesty was the best policy. Ashley sensed it too. Mom, what's happened? She asked concerned. What followed was the hardest conversation I have ever had to have. The sound of my little girl's wail that rang throughout the Denver night sky will haunt my mind forever. I didn't go into detail about the horrible things Robert did to Jeff. But, for all his faults, Ashley knew her father wouldn't have given up her location easy. Her imagination was her own worst enemy. When we arrived at the airport and boarded the plane back to Texas, it took the entire two-hour flight for Ashley to stop crying and fall asleep. I cradled her in my arms the whole flight. It felt like a double-edged blade. As much as I could tell that she was in pain over the fate of her father... It was nice to finally feel like I had my baby girl back. The plane landed and Agent Rodriguez escorted us off the plane into the Fort Worth Airport parking lot, where another SUV with two agents inside was waiting. As we unlocked the vehicle and began to climb in, Rodriguez switched his cell phone on. Now he was off the plane. He looked at his notifications and began to look a little confused. Everything okay? I asked. Um, yeah, I think so. Sorry, just one minute. The agent sounded flustered and he held a finger up, signaling for me to give him a minute to collect his thoughts. He began to dial the number. Come on, come on. What the heck? The agent said as his phone call wasn't answered. He sighed in frustration. What's going on, agent? I asked intently. Quince and Bodkins, they, they aren't answering. Protocol states that they should call and check in every hour to let me know everything is okay. 
If the phone is off, they should text. I, I, I don't understand. He started to sound really concerned. What about the officer, the detective that you spoke with? Hepworth, was it? I asked, unsure of the name. Hepworth. I mean, I've got five missed calls from my Dallas number. Maybe that's the number of the officer he sent to the safe house. The agent said, as he pressed redial on the missed call. At this point, we were now in the vehicle. The Bluetooth caused the phone to come through the speakers. The phone rang a few times before it was finally answered. Captain Reginald Porter, Dallas PD. Hi, apologies for my delayed response. I've been on a flight. My name is Special Agent Rodriguez from the FBI and I thank you. Yes, of course, my agent. I've been trying to get in touch with you all night. We believe you were in touch with one of our detectives earlier tonight. Regarding protection for a Jeff Benning, the captain asked. Oh, yeah, I was. I was just trying to get in touch with Dan Hepworth, actually. I was wondering if you knew. No, no, no. Detective Richard Earnshaw, the captain interrupted. Oh, yeah, he was one of the first guys that I had contacted. Apparently he was reassigned and Dan Hepworth took over. Why, what's happened? Rodriguez waited curiously as there was a silence. He's dead. We found him a few hours ago in Jeff Benning's garage, along with another officer who he attended the property with, Officer Mills. Agent Rodriguez was stunned, as was I. We were speechless, so the captain continued. We found them both stuffed in the trunk of Jeff Benning's car. They had been ambushed because neither of them got a round off and both of their necks were broken. Sorry to change the subject suddenly, but you mentioned a Dan Hepworth. What is going on, Captain? Who is Dan Hepworth? How does he have a dead man's phone? Agent Rodriguez demanded to know. Well, I don't know how to tell you this, but... We don't have any detectives here by that name. It was back, that ringing tone. It's hard to describe it, really. Imagine you've just stood next to a grenade that's just detonated. Your ears ringing, your mind blank. Shell shot is probably the word people use. The implications of what we had just learned had everyone's mind scrambled. We had driven fast all evening, don't get me wrong but nothing compared to how we were rapidly weaving in and out of traffic right now, desperately trying to get to the safe house. It was pointless, though. Agent Rodriguez got the call from Quince when we had landed in Denver, meaning Robert had arrived at the safe house at around 9.40 p.m. The clever guy sent us on a wild goose chase to Denver while he went after his real target right here in Texas. Our best hope of Sadie being alive was that Robert wandered that way. I was trying to tell myself that he wouldn't kill her, just to hurt me, but I knew that wasn't true. We pulled up to the safe house at 3.15am. The collection of blue lights, yellow tape, and men in white over suits were not a good sign. I stared in horror out of the tinted window and up the property's garden path, watching as a pair of stretchers carrying black body bags were being wheeled out of the front door of the small townhouse. I, along with Ashley, burst from the car. We ran to the nearest stretcher and screamed at the paramedic to get out of the way. The medical officials protested at our tugging at the zebs, frantically trying to open the bag. However, 
Once Rodriguez gave him a signal to stand down, they complied and he joined in in our checking the ID of the bodies. As the agent pulled the zip down, I was praying as I was not about to be greeted by Sadie's face. Thankfully, I wasn't. But what looked up at me had me taken aback. A man, his face was badly disfigured. His nose and top lip looked like they had been violently bitten off. Both eyes were swallowed up. I didn't dare look at what other injuries Robert had inflicted on this poor man. Agent Rodriguez grabbed his head with both hands and began to shake it in grief. God, Bodkins, no! He was furious, but his anger soon turned to horror and anticipation as he looked at the other stretcher. The size was similar to the one containing the body of Agent Bodkins. I think at this point I knew Sadie wasn't in there, as did Agent Rodriguez. Me and Ashley stood in sympathy as Rodriguez marched over to the other body bag. Whoa, 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 sir. I really don't think you want to see. The paramedic tried to warn the agent, but he had already ushered him out of the way as he opened the bag. Rodriguez looked down at Agent Quince's face and fell to his knees. His pain filled wails as he looked down at the brutality that had been bestowed on his best friend and colleague of 15 years. Filled the midnight air. His reaction gave me deja vu of earlier this evening, when Ashley had learned of her father. As Agent Rodriguez mourned the death of his two fallen comrades, I made my way into the safe house. A police officer on the doorstep attempted to stop my entry. Excuse me, ma'am, but this is a crime scene and you can't. I didn't let him finish his sentence before I pushed him aside and informed him it was my daughter that they were supposed to be protecting. I also said if there was anyone who could find a clue to her whereabouts, it would be me. I'm so sorry, ma'am. I didn't realize who you were, he said sincerely as he leaned in close. He began to whisper. The two cops that he killed were good guys, both had families and kids. He kissed his teeth in anger, and he continued. I'll escort you inside so you don't disturb any potential evidence. But if you can help in any way, help us catch that guy then you're welcome to come inside. This way, ma'am. He ushered me into the building. Put this on and don't touch anything and sign this. He said as he handed me a forensic oversuit and a clipboard. I complied and entered the house. The hallway didn't seem too disturbed. I noticed the garage door was ajar, but other than that, nothing to note. However, once we had made our way down the hall, a smell filled my nostrils a mixture of metallic odor and burning flesh. I prepared myself as I went through the living room door. I winced. Unspeakable things had happened in this room. The furniture was all pushed back against the walls to make a large space in the center of the room. Two desk chairs were in the middle of the room, roughly two meters apart. There was torn pieces of duct tape still stuck in the armrest of each chair, as well as the chair legs. A high concentration of blood splatter was on the floor and wall by the first chair, with seven fingers and around five or six teeth lay strewed across the space surrounding the chair. A claw hammer, some pliers, and a pair of bolt cutters also lay nearby, again all covered in blood. The other chair had areas where the plastic was melted and the fabric was badly singed. A blowtorch lay close by. 
I held my mouth as I tried not to gib, but also trying to stop the flow of horrible nasal indicators of what had occurred here. I walked out of the room and made my way upstairs, following the landing around to the end of the bedroom. The door was ajar, and I opened it fully. The room was pristine. No signs of violence or struggle in here, thankfully. The bed she was sleeping in, the sheets had been carefully pulled back and Sadie had been carefully lifted out of it. Robert's antics downstairs were clearly carried out while Sadie was sleeping. She was a deep sleeper, fair enough, but surely Robert must have gagged these men. There was no way they didn't scream. I picked up the pillow, pressed it against my face, and inhaled the deep smell of my beautiful baby girl. I began to sob as I wondered how on earth I could have failed my children so badly. But then I felt it. Inside the pillowcase was a faint, crinkly outline of a sheet of paper. I dug my hand into the pillowcase and fished it out. I tried to hold it still, but my hands were shaking. Finally, I composed myself and flicked the paper outward so its message became clear. Dear Amy, Sadie is safe for now. You have my word. I've had more than enough fun since I left Florence, as I'm sure you're aware of. But believe me, I have one more in me. You or Sadie. The decision is yours. Come to the old office space on Worth Heights. I'll give you till 5am. If you don't show or I see a fed, I will tear her to pieces. You know I will. Yours sincerely, Robert. My heart began to pound, half out of panic and half from anger. I screwed up the paper and threw it in the small bin in the corner of the bedroom. I made my way outside. The police officer in the door signed me out and requested me to hand him my suit. He asked if I had found anything, and I said that I lied to him, saying that I hadn't. Mom, is Sadie okay? Is she in there? Ashley asked in a panic. I grabbed his shoulders and shook my head. No, baby, she isn't. He's taken her. I informed her. Her face began to deform in horror, to which I calmed her down by saying, That's a good thing, honey. Everyone else left behind is not in a good way. He clearly wants her alive. Agent Rodriguez came running across the garden. We know where she is, he said as he waved me over to his car. I gasped inside. Where? I asked tentatively. He's at the airport. He took Quince's car. What he doesn't know is the car is a tracker. I've alerted the airport to be on the lookout for him and Sadie. He's trapped. Dallas PD and Fort Worth PD are already swarming the building. Let's go get him. He opened the rear door for me to jump in. I thought on my feet. I'm not coming, I said bluntly. And neither is Ashley, I added. Both Rodriguez and Ashley looked at me as if I had just peeled my face off. What? They both exclaimed. If I'm there when you arrest him and he knows the game is up, he could kill Sadie just to get one last dagger in. Please, go get my baby and I'll stay here with Ashley. I said, trying to sound convincing. Ashley wasn't happy. Rodriguez, on the other hand, I could tell that he got my point. He promised me that he would call once they had Cassidy in cuffs and Sadie was safe. He made his way over to the car and began to climb in, when all of a sudden, Ashley followed suit. You can sit here all you want, but I'm going to get my sister, she said, that strappy teen charm shining through. 
I did my best to sign against the idea, but this was ideal. I protested, but I knew Ashley wouldn't back down and she didn't disappoint. Agent Rodriguez promised to keep her safe, and I believed him. Even if I didn't know he wasn't going to arrest Cassidy, I would believe him. As soon as they left, I checked my watch. 4.38am. I quickly went over to the cop on the door who signed me in earlier. I started to shiver the best I could. Sorry to bother you, but I don't know if it's the shock or the cold, but I'm really shaking. Do you mind if I sit in your car? I asked, and giving my eyelashes a flutter for good measure. He smiled and dug his hand in his pocket, pulling out a set of keys. Turn the ignition to the first point. That'll activate the heating. He said with a friendly nod. I thanked him and made my way over to his cruiser. I let myself into the driver's seat, making sure that he wasn't looking as I did so. Before anyone knew anything, I turned the key and went. I pulled into the lot that surrounded the mid-constructed tower block. I had read about this on the news. This five-story building had been commissioned a year ago for around 25 student flats to be built for students of the Fort Worth University. It was in the middle of its construction, so it was around 60 foot of wood flooring, scaffolding, and plastic sheeting. I exited the car and had a look around. I saw a pair of tire marks leading to a space in front of the main entrance, but no other vehicle was in sight. I assumed Robert drove to the airport and got a taxi from there to here, knowing full well that the vehicle had a tracker. I don't doubt the two agents told him everything he needed to know with the things that he did to them. I made my way up the tower block. Each floor was based with a thick sheeting of plywood, sitting on the steel frame of the building. There was a small hatch with ladders in the center of each floor, which permitted users to climb the tower. I began to climb too carefully and make my way up each set. As I got to the foot of the final ladder, I heard a small child whimper. A deep, asserted voice followed telling the child, Shh. I think your mommy is here now. My adrenaline was at its peak as it pumped through my body. Had it been any other situation, I would have fled for my life. However, he had my child, so I climbed to fight. I peeked my head up through the hatch. I scanned the area. Mommy! A soft voice cried from the far corner of the building. I immediately looked over. There she was, my baby girl safe and sound, but there, restraining her blade to her neck, was Robert. I assured Sadie that it would be okay, and I let her know that Mommy was here to save her. Well, reunited at last, baby girl, Robert said in his usual charming voice. I hope you appreciate the amount of people I had to kill to arrange this little rendezvous. I hope you realize how much I love you, Amy. He actually sounded believable. You're a monster. You don't know what love is. Now let my baby girl go. I tried to be assertive. No. I loved you, Amy. I mean, look at you and look at me. You were beat up over the wrong side of 35. Saggy and lumpy in all the wrong places. I could have any woman that I wanted, but I chose you. That's love, Amy. And you betrayed me. His mask was off now. His darkness exuded towards me. You killed all those girls. And yet, I didn't kill you. 
Despite you always snooping in my things and spying at me like the paranoid freak you are, how can you say I don't love you? You're sick, I said bluntly, causing Robert to chuckle. I'm not sick. Sick people don't escape from the most secure facility in the US. Sick people don't manipulate the FBI into going on some wild goose chase all night. You're a sicko. What you did to Jeff, to those officers, to the agents. I began to reel off the list of bodies that had piled up in the last 24 hours. Ah, those officers. They beat me in my custody cell when I was first arrested. Those agents. You should have seen how they belittled me in my interviews. And Jeff. Do not hold a candle to that coward. He's not worth your grief. He said, grinning at me, as I slapped a piece of tape over Sadie's mouth. What do you mean? I asked, carefully eyeing the sledgehammer resting against the wall by Robert. I tried to carefully make my way over to it. Well, you see, I needed to hurt him so badly that you guys would assume he told me where Ashley was. That guy gave her a location up after the first cut. He barely put up a fight. Even I didn't expect that. I needed him to look bad, so I carried out anyway. As I began doing these horrible things, he begged me to stop and let me call her. He said he would invite her over, pay for her flight and everything. That sack of crap was willing to hand his daughter over for me, simply to save his own skin. I did you and Ashley a favor, believe me. His vacant look as he discussed the torture of Jeff chilled me to the core. He continued, I mean, don't get me wrong. I should have just killed those two feds the same way that I killed the two police. Quick and simple. Snuffed out with a firm snap of the neck. Attack my body if you will, I can forgive that. But don't attack my legacy. That is a very different story. During my interviews, those agents called me stupid for underestimating you. They called me textbook and ordinary for being like every other serial killer. They called me simple for being caught. Those words have rung in my head for two and a half years. Who's stupid now? They welcomed me in. Boiled the kettle asked me if I wanted cream and sugar. The look on that Quince's face when he came in to find his friend with half his face missing. Priceless. Although it was nothing compared to the look on his face when I lit the blowtorch. His face honestly resembled that of someone reminiscing on happy times. Meanwhile, I stood there feeling nauseous. Partially from the adrenaline spike. Partially from the vile details provided by Robert. I had moved to within three meters of the sledgehammer, disguising it as me approaching Sadie. He hadn't noticed, I don't think. So then, Robert, all this violence and scheming, what's the end game? Why are we here? I asked, now just two meters away from the hammer. I'm not built for prison, Amy. I don't do well in captivity. Having kids who were bullied in school and all taking their insecurities out on people in chains. Knuckle-drapping yobs with a baton and a stun gun telling you when to wake, when to sleep, when to eat, and when to crap. No. If I don't get to be free and hunt, then I'm no long for this world. So, I want to go out with a bang. I want to live in people's memory. I guarantee every police officer in Texas will remember my name. I guarantee Agent Rodriguez will think of me every year when it's his best friend's birthday. And I guarantee either you or Sadie will think of the other after tonight. And depending on how you want to play this, he said, pulling a blade out of his belt. 
I was one meter from the sledgehammer. This was my chance. I dived for the hammer. I was inches away when a hard, stiff blow struck my face. I hit the floor hard, ears ringing, eyes shaking. A stream of blood poured down my face and ears. Robert was standing over me, brick in hand. My god, he was quick. I tried to crawl to the hammer. It was my only chance. Robert stamped down hard on my hand, causing me to scream in pain. My hand was on fire. I was sure that it was broken in every possible place. I cradled it and looked up at Robert in pain as he smiled at me. I've made my choice. Me. Kill me. Leave Sadie alone. I begged in agony, pleading to any shred of decency that Robert had. So be it. He grabbed his blade and advanced on me. Get off my mom, Sadie screamed. She had freed herself on a piece of glass and was charging towards Robert. I don't know whether to call her clever or stupid, but Robert stood up and grabbed her by the throat and forced her back on the ground. Sadie winced in pain and began to sob. You're a bad man. You killed my daddy, she said through her tears. Robert smiled with pleasure. Wow, Amy, you must really hate me. Telling her that that sniffling card of a man is her father and not the truth, he said, loving every second of it. No, you're right, Sadie. I didn't kill your father, he said, about to reveal who he really was. I took this chance to crawl to the hammer. I turned over and dragged myself towards it. I didn't kill your father because... Robert continued as I looked up for the hammer. It was gone. I was confused. Oh no, he was going to use it on Sadie. I flipped over and looked up. No... He didn't kill your father. I did. Ashley screamed as she swung the sledgehammer hard into Robert's jaw. The impact forced him, stumbling back towards the edge of the structure. As soon as his heels went over, myself, Sadie, Ashley, and Agent Rodriguez watched him spiral 180 degrees over the ledge, face first. A few seconds later, we heard a sheet of glass shatter, tin split, and a loud thud. Mom, are you okay? Ashley and Sadie ran over and cradled me. Agent Rodriguez pulled out his radio. He informed Control that he had the positive location of Robert Cassidy and Sadie Benning. He requested backup, a paramedic, and a coroner. He then came over to me to render first aid. How did you know I was here? I said, head throbbing. Agent Rodriguez smiled. You honestly didn't think Officer Wise wouldn't report his car being stolen by a madwoman, did you? And the FBI vehicles aren't the only ones with trackers in them, he informed. Me and Ashley came to check on you, saw the car, came up the tower and heard you two going at it. Believe me, it wasn't my idea for Triple H over here to go running in, but I'm happy she did, he added, looking at Ashley with a wink. Around 20 minutes later, the cavalry turned up. Agents came up the structure along with the medical professionals. The medics began treating my head injury as the agents asked where Robert was. He went over the edge. Amy was defending herself. He was trying to force his weapon on her and she kicked him off with her legs and he fell. No doubt about it, self-defense. Rodriguez explained, clearly wanting to keep Ashley away from anything that could potentially come back on her. He continued... Cassidy fell three floors. Looks like he went through that glass structure on the second floor. 
His body crashed through the roof of the worker's porter cabin. Took a nasty fall. Should find his body there, he informed, ordering the agents to go to retrieve the body. As me and my girls were escorted out of the structure, they brought out Robert's body in one of those familiar black body bags on a stretcher. Rodriguez asked the agent, So, he's dead then? And to which he chuckled, Oh yeah, nasty fall. Barely had a face left after all that. Neck was broken, as was his jaw. Ashley and I shared a look. She almost looked pleased. I mean, fair play to her. She did catch him a beauty. After a few weeks, me and my girls were back in San Antonio, trying to get on with our lives. I sat Sadie down and told her the truth about who her father was. She took it well. She's a strong girl. I decided to not tell Ashley what Robert had told me about Jeff. I told her that Robert was impressed with how much he had hurt him in order to get him to disclose her location. I would rather have a good lasting impression of her father. I would rather not give Robert his dying wish of tormenting people's memories. One morning, I went to collect the mail. As usual, there was a mountain of bills. Agent Rodriguez, however, had promised the reward for his arrest would be processed to us, given our assistance in the case, this time in the previous. One letter stood out, however. It was a unique envelope. The address was handwritten and the stamp was Canadian. I tossed the letter on the counter, deciding to read it later with a glass of wine. The phone, stuffed in my pocket, began to vibrate, causing me to drop whatever I was doing. I pulled it out of my tight jeans after some difficulty. It was Agent Rodriguez. I answered quickly before the call rung off. Well, hello there, Supervisory Special Agent Rodriguez, I said, emphasizing Rodriguez's new title. He had been given a well-deserved promotion after recent events. Amy, where are you? Where are the girls? He sounded panicked. I wasn't prepared for this. They're at school and I'm at home. Why, what's going on? My voice was rushed and trembling. The morning after Cassidy's death, a local taxi firm reported one of their drivers missing. They said that he never returned to base that morning. Fort Worth PD finally got around to investigating it. They found his car, abandoned on some rail tracks near where Cassidy fell. They tracked the vehicle's movements using the GPS. The last journey was from Dallas-Fort Worth International Airport, heading to the Worth Heights office park. That's how Robert got there after dumping Quince's car. We decided to carry out a forensic search of the taxi driver's car. We had harvested plenty of DNA, which is likely to be the driver of the vehicle. We compared that to the body found in the porter cabin after Cassidy's fall. It's a match, he said as I faded out. There it was again. The deft tone of my ears, the blood pumping far too hard. I was drowning once again. I could hear Rodriguez in the background shouting through the phone, but I wasn't registering with me. Faintly, I could hear, Amy, are you okay? I am sending a car for you and the girl stay on the phone. I dropped the phone and the panic again set in. I stumbled over to the counter. I placed both hands on it to get my balance and prevent myself from falling to the ground. I looked down at the tile surface and the out-of-place letter stared right back up at me. I composed myself and began tearing at the envelope and pulled out a single sheet of A4 paper. It read, Dear Amy, 
I guess this letter won't come as a shock as I assume by now. You're aware the man who they carried out of the cabin wasn't me. He was a nice fella. I didn't want to tear his face off, honestly, but I needed a backup. Tell Ashley that she has quite the swing on her. Kudos. I have no current plans to come for you, and I can assure you of that. You have my word. I'm having far too much fun here in the Great White North. However, there will be a time my plans change. But until then, I wish you the best. Thinking of you always. Yours truly, Robert. I hope you all enjoyed today's stories. And I want to give a big thanks to today's sponsors, Manscaped. Get 20% off and free shipping with the code MrCreeps at Manscaped.com. And Best Fiends. Download the 5-star rated puzzle game Best Fiends free to in the App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends. Please support today's sponsors if you can, as they help keep this content free for all listeners. And as always, stay creepy.